The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Annie, get your gun. Annie Oakley. I'm so glad you decided to turn this on and listen to the incredible story of her life. At the height of her career, the talented sharpshooter was arguably the most famous woman in America, if not the world, dazzling audiences and setting records as she fired at clay pigeons, birds, glass balls, and performing a wide array of how in the hell is that even possible trick shots. Her love of guns began in her childhood when she didn't use them to entertain, but to survive, literally. Born Phoebe Ann Mosey, Annie picked up her father's gun when he died, and she began feeding her incredibly impoverished family as a young child. By the age of 16, she'd use her skills to pay off her mother's mortgage. By 20, she was competing in shooting competitions across Ohio, and it was during one of these shooting competitions where she would meet and beat her future husband, an Irish immigrant named Frank Butler. Their love story, pretty damn special, pretty incredible. In a time when a female breadwinner was almost unheard of, Annie went on to become one of the highest paid entertainers in the world. She performed in Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show and through it performed for European royalty by pulling off amazing feats such as shooting the end of a cigarette held in her husband's lips, hitting the thin edge of a playing card from 30 paces and shooting distant targets behind her, looking at them through a mirror shooting back over her shoulder. She impressed American Indian leader Sitting Bull so much in 1884 that he adopted her and bestowed upon her the additional nickname of Little Sure Shot. The two would have a lifelong friendship. And she didn't hog all of her success to herself. She did so much for others. Throughout her career, it's believed that Oakley taught more than 15,000 other women how to use a gun. Oakley believed strongly that it was crucial for women to learn how to use a gun. It's not only a form of physical and mental exercise, but also to defend themselves. She said, I would like to see every woman know how to handle guns as naturally as they know how to handle babies. Despite all the disadvantages she was born with, being very poor, growing up in an incredibly rural environment, and being a woman in the 19th century in America, Annie never let any of that get her down or hold her back. So how did Annie pursue her love of guns and go on to lead such a fascinating and worldly life? 
How did the little girl who was for a time an indentured servant go on to become an entertainer for European royalty? Let's find out in this week's gunslinging, Wild West, record-breaking, yeah, 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 edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, hail Nimrod, and happy Thanksgiving, you turkey or tofurkey eating motherfuckers. International meat sacks living outside the U.S., go ahead and celebrate as well. Every day's a good day for mashed potatoes and gravy. Uh, hail Lucifina, praise Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M as well. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker, Sir Sucks a Lot, Lord of the Suck, low level servant of the good God Amway. And you are listening to Time Suck. Uh, get ready for some inf- inspiration today. Uh, black crew neck, Bad Magic Productions holiday sweater in the store at badmagicmerch.com. It is glorious. It's made out of 314% pure international chinchilla vulva for maximum softness and sensuality. Imported. Uh, recorded this before Sucksgiving. Hoping our virtual hang was so much fun. Been having a lot of fun putting together a historical suck on the darker than I was taught origins of Thanksgiving. So I guess next week uh, I'll hope to remember uh, to comment on how much fun I had. And hopefully you have a lot of fun. Uh, I also have a uh, giving tree update next week. Um, I will say right now, holy shit, have you meat sacks been generous? Blew away any expectations we had. Massive donation will be announced next week. A lot of the Cult of the Curious holiday celebrations going to be given a huge adrenaline boost. Uh, so very thankful for that. Uh, and, and that's it for announcements. And now for a lighter, though just as intense and interesting, weekly time suck exploration. Uh, taking a break from true crime today to get into someone's life who, uh, as opposed to many of the murderers we've examined, used their guns for good, lots of good, from making a living for her family to providing for herself and her husband to even teach women how to defend themselves. Annie Oakley loved guns, knew they could be used to entertain and inspire people. So let's dig into her uh, rootin' tootin' Wild West hog folk dog folk uh, story right now. Annie Oakley lived in an interesting time. She was just 12 years old when the Bloody Benders from last week were doing most of their dirty hammer work. Uh, The world Annie grew up in was just starting to become seriously industrialized, and the global economy was just starting to really rev up. Many industries, including show business, the one Annie would make her living in, were now going global, really for the first time. Uh, We'll get into this week's Time Suck timeline and go through Annie's childhood full of hardships and their fascinating life. But first, we'll take a look at what America in general was like in the second half of the 19th century, when Annie was between the age of just popped out uh, to uh, 40, and we'll pay particularly close attention to what life was like for the majority of women at that time. Uh, Hint, uh, better than it had been, but still not as good as those born with an outside vagina. Uh, I'm referring to us men there. Should we start calling our penises outside vaginas? I don't know, maybe. We should probably put it up for a vote or something. Uh, New opportunities in, in industrialization in America in the late 1800s meant that women were presented with new options for living their lives in a very different way than their mothers and grandmothers had lived before them. But there was still the ever-present pressure to be a good wife and mother, mind the domestic sphere, let one's husband take charge. And Annie was like, fuck that. I'm a better shot than a man, and I don't need a man to guide me through life and throw me in the kitchen when I should be out uh, working on my shooting. Annie was the rare female breadwinner in her family. Uh, She also never had kids, which was atypical. Uh, did not spend her free time taking care of the home. She spent it traveling around the country and then the world. And she spoke her mind without making sure her husband approved first. 
Uh, she did love her husband, I should point out, very much, and he loved her very much, and I think he respected her in a very different way than most men of his day. Uh, the love story of Annie Oakley and Frank Butler is an incredible one. Uh, get, get your tissues ready towards the end of the show. Uh, Annie just wasn't much for domest uh, domesticity and was never going to offer Frank that. Not that he wanted it from her. So, hail Lucifina. Uh, Lucifina probably has a poster of Annie Oakley tacked onto one of the walls of her fiery abode. Okay, let's really get into the cultural backdrop of her life now. Uh, the American economy expanded and matured at a remarkable rate in the decades following the War of 1812. At the beginning of the 19th century, the United States was an overwhelmingly rural and agricultural nation. 90% of the population in the Northeast and 95% of the people of the South lived on farms or in villages with fewer than 2,500 inhabitants. It was small towns all across the land and almost nothing but small towns. And there just wasn't that many American settlers uh, at all out West. The Spanish had explored the West, but not so much for the U.S. Uh, Lewis and Clark wouldn't start their famous Western expedition until 1804, and the Oregon Trail wouldn't really get going until 1839. It would still be quite some time before many Western-bound U.S. settlers would McGill's pop off the buttholes in the Rockies. Uh, the population of the U.S. was still small and scattered over a vast geographical area, just 5.3 million people in 1800 compared to 15 million living in Britain and 27, uh, 27 million living in France, both much smaller nations geographically. Uh, transportation and communications had changed little over the previous half century before the year 1800. A coach ride between Boston and New York took three days. Three days. Uh, from New York to Philadelphia, two days. South of the Mason-Dixon line, the situation was even worse. Except for a single stagecoach that traveled between Charleston and Savannah, there was no public transportation of any kind. It would take 20 days to deliver a letter between Maine and Georgia. American houses, clothing, agricultural methods were surprisingly still pretty primitive. 50 miles inland, half the houses were log cabins, lacking even glass windows. Farmers planted, planted their crops in much the same way as their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents before them. Few farmers practiced crop rotation or used fertilizers or drained fields. They made plows out of wood, allowed their swine to run loose, left their cattle outside except on the coldest nights, and manufacturing was also still pretty backwards. In rural areas, farm families grew their own food, produced their own soap and candles, wove their own blankets, and constructed their own furniture. Sounds fucking awful for someone like me with zero patience. Instead of driving three minutes, literally three minutes down the street to the nearest grocery store, or uh, literally 90 seconds to the nearest mini-mart to, to buy me a tasty snack, thank you, Twinkies, uh, I would have had to make my own snack. No bueno. Gross. What is this, the 1800s? It is actually in this story. Uh, the leading manufacturing industries, iron making, textiles, and clothes making employed only about 15,000 people in mills or factories in 1800. But then in the 25 years that followed the War of 1812, the develop development of steamboats, canals, uh, ultimately railroads, reduced transportation costs, sped up communications dramatically, really helped industrialization. The times they were a changing. The rapid growth of cities created expanding markets for industrial goods. Improvements in farming dramatically increased agricultural productivity stimulated industrialization by paying for imports of machinery and manufactured goods and freed many farm children to work in industry and commerce. Get them, off, get them off the fields into the factories where there's no child labor loss. Not all, not all of it was good. A series of technological innovations highlighted by the development of the American system of mass production and interchangeable parts stimulated productivity. The rapid growth of the West created a great new center for the production of grains and pork, permitting the country's previously settled sections to specialize in other crops. 
New processes of manufacture, particularly in textiles, not only accelerated an industrial revolution in the Northeast, but also drastically enlarging the Northern markets for raw materials helped account for a boom in Southern uh, cotton production. Industrial workers organized the country's first trade unions, uh, even working men's political parties early in this period. New large corporations thrived in an era of booming capital requirements. Older and simpler forms of attracting investment capital were now rendered obsolete. The road leading towards the modern big corporations, work smarter, not harder world we now live in, uh, really was just first being built in many ways in the first half of the 19th century. Industrialization, globalization set the world on a whole new course that it is uh, still on. Commerce became increasingly specialized with the division of labor, becoming more and more sophisticated. By 1825, the population of the U.S. had more than doubled since 1800, up from 5.3 million to 11.1 million. Uh, Then between 1825 and 1860, the year of Annie's birth, the population would nearly triple from 11.1 million to 31.4 million. In the decades before the American Civil War, the young U.S. was really starting to develop its own unique culture, was no longer an extension of Europe. Europe uh, on on a different continent wasn't that anymore. Uh, The civilization of the U.S. exerted an irresistible pull on a lot of visitors who sailed over in the 1800s. In contrast to the relatively static and well-ordered civilization of the old world, America seemed excitingly turbulent, dynamic, and in constant flux. Uh, The balance of power in the world was shifting. The U.S. was the world's shiniest new toy, and a lot of people wanted to come and play with it. Americans were different. Uh, you know, than Europeans. His people were comparatively crude, more, uh, yeah, 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 a little more hog folk, dog folk than, why, yes, Rutherford. That is an exquisite vintage that will pair splendidly with this caviar. Uh, Americans were excitingly vital, awesomely ambitious, overly optimistic, incredibly independent. There was just something in the air in the young land of opportunity. Many well-bred Europeans were evidently taken aback by the self-assurance of comparatively light-educated American common folk, The Americans have never let a a lack of education hold us back, for better or for worse. Uh, Ordinary Americans seemed unwilling to defer to anyone on the basis of their education, rank, or status. Uh, We still seem to have that spirit, right? Whatever, Professor Big Words! Earth sure as shit looked flat to me! Uh, Cut to that dude peeling out in a cloud of exhaust smoke in a lifted 92 Silverado with a bumper sticker of Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes uh, pissing on a Prius. Woo! Fuck yeah, bro! Uh, America was attractive to many. And it started attracting a ton of immigrants. In the 1830s and 1840s, the U.S. population ramped up an extra couple of notches thanks to far more immigrants pouring into the country than it ever poured in before. Whereas about 250,000 Europeans had arrived in the first three decades of the 19th century, 10 times that many red-rovered on over between 1830 and 1850. This particular wave of newcomers were overwhelmingly Irish and German Uh, Germans were fleeing Germany to escape the political unrest caused by heavy taxation and political censorship there that led to riots, rebellion, and eventually a revolution in 1848. And the Irish, who composed half of all immigrants coming to the U.S. in the 1840s, mostly showed up on accident. Uh, Many of them thought that they were sailing to England, and then they just ended up going the wrong way, and they just kept going for weeks and weeks uh, when their trip from one island to the next was only supposed to be a 12-mile trip uh, because they were fucking stupid. Stupid! They were stupid, stupid, stupid! And they still are! Ugh! JK. Uh, I can make that joke, because according to 23andMe, I'm 55.8% British and Irish. That's how it works right now, isn't it? Right? Okay, I can, okay. I got Irish blood in me, so I can say crazy things that don't make any sense about the Irish. Sorry. Sometimes I just like to yell to get my blood pumping. Uh, The Irish showed up in America because they were fleeing the Irish potato famine that lasted from 1845 to 1849. 
Oh, that's the truth. In 1847 alone, uh, tragically, roughly a million Irish died, mostly from starvation, which is crazy. I guess it shouldn't be crazy to me that it happened that recently because it still happens in parts of the world. But it still feels insane to me that in Ireland, uh, roughly a million people died that year. And another million left Ireland. Many of these immigrants uh, arriving on the U.S. eastern seaboard fueled industrialization in eastern cities. So many new workers for so many new factories. Get in the factory, you dumb Irish ancestor of mine. Back to work. Uh, Not all immigrants. I don't know why that's amusing me right now. This random slander of Irish people who I have nothing against because... Yeah, whatever. Not all immigrants worked in the factories. Many headed west to farm and ranch or work as shopping saloon keepers out west or to try and make their fortunes in gold during the many gold rushes of the 19th century or to work on the railroads, et cetera, et cetera. Despite the growth of new industries, urban centers, and immigration, America in the late 19th century when Annie was around was still predominantly rural. Seven out of 10 people in the U.S. lived in small towns with populations under 2,500 or on farms still in 1870. Most Americans continued to live out in the country with the hog folk and the dog folk. And in the country, despite this new American wave of industrialization, life hadn't changed that much for many. Although improved machinery had resulted in expanded farm production and had given further impetus to the commercialization of agriculture, the way of life for most independent agriculturalists was about the same by mid-century as it had been for the century before. Many farmers led lives marked by unremitting toil, cash shortage, and little leisure. Farm workers received minuscule wages. Sounds kind of like a medieval serfdom. In all sections of the country, much of the best land was concentrated into the hands of a small number of wealthy farmers. Sounds exactly like medieval serfdom. The proportion of farm families who owned their land, however, was far greater in the U.S. than in Europe. And varied evidence points to a steady improvement in the standard and style of living of agriculturalists as the mid-century approached. So I guess a little better than serfdom. Uh, In 1860, the year of Annie's birth, women were still 60 years away from having the right to vote, Uh, but things were getting better for women in America in the second half of the 19th century. Uh, Well, uh, for white women, anyway. Uh, By 1860, it was almost as likely for a white girl as a white boy to attend school, even in farming regions of the country. The success of these early ventures assured that when secondary education expanded after the Civil War, it would be overwhelmingly co-educational as far as co-ed. While this uh, equality aspect of American education was good, an overall lack of focus on education in general in America uh, when Annie was a little kid was was not good. In 1870, when she was 10, I couldn't believe this. I don't know why this really surprised me as well. Only 160 high schools in the entire country. Right, 38.6 million people, 160 high schools. That's how uneducated people were back then. Now, not all of uh, those people were of high school age, obviously, out of that population number. But this data gives us an easy way to examine how much schooling was available compared to other points in American history. For comparative purposes, there was one high school for every 64,333 people in 1870. The U.S. has uh, 331 million people now and approximately 24,000 high schools, which is one high school for every 13,971 people. Way better. Uh, Per capita, we have 4.6 times as many high schools now as we did in 1870. So as frustrated as you may be with the widespread uh, ignorance and stupidity that seems to exist today, uh, and it is frustrating, I think, uh, feel good knowing that in, in, you know, uh, there were a lot more ignorant people in 1870s America than in 2020s America. Like if YouTube had existed back then, you probably wouldn't even be able to read about 50% of the comments. It would be total gibberish instead of today's quite a bit of gibberish. Uh, In 1870, one out of five American adults were completely illiterate. 
Less than 1% of the current population is illiterate now. Feels like good progress. Uh, feels to me, honestly, like that current number should be higher, but only because I'm pretty sure that 99% of the 1% that are not uh, totally literate are very active on YouTube. Dad, how do I write funny under video? How, how you spell the? How you spell A? How you spell noise? Uh, by 1880, there were almost 800 high schools in America. There were an extra 12 million people and an extra 740 high schools. That's progress. Uh, 20 years later, at the end of the century, the number of high schools had grown to 6,000, an extra 5,200 high schools for an extra 26 million people. More progress. More and more men and women in the U.S. were being educated. All high schools for, were for uh, white people only, unfortunately, until 1870. Obviously horrific, but progress still being made. Women began to be admitted to some Midwestern universities in the 1850s and 1860s. Initially, only when those universities were short on students overall. A shortage obviously attributed initially to the Civil War. Uh, despite a bit more educational access opportunities in the workforce for women after childhood were nonetheless still pretty limited in the mid-19th century. As factories took over many of the jobs women would have had to do at home, many women didn't begin to find opportunities working with their, um, excuse me, many women did begin to find opportunities working with their churches and social organizations, running charity schools and uh, refuges uh, for women in need. Still, women weren't even allowed to do this without the permission of their husbands or fathers. And the cult of patriarchal dominance and domesticity, that word fucking kills me. Domestic, I can say. Domesticness, fine. Domesticity, ah, it feels, uh, feels soft to me. Uh, but yeah, the cult of patriarchal dominance and domesticity persisted. The cult of domesticity is an important idea that came out of the early 19th century and encompassed essentially everything a woman was supposed to be and do. This cult, uh, a term invented by historians, also sometimes referred to as the cult of true womanhood, uh, terms used to describe the prevailing value system among the upper and middle classes during the 19th century in the U.S. and in the U.K., uh, the beliefs embodied in these cults gave women a central, if outwardly passive, role in the family. According to this prevailing ideology, women's God-given role was as wife and mother, keeper of the household, guardian of the moral purity of all who lived therein. Uh, the Victorian home was to be a haven of comfort and quiet, sheltered from the harsh realities of the working world. Housework took on a scientific quality, efficiency being the watchword. Children were to be cherished and nurtured, morality protected through the commonly promoted uh, Protestant beliefs of, and social protest against alcohol, poverty, and the decay of urban living. Women's popular literature of this period, full of advice about uh, an encouragement for proper housekeeping. Implicit in this advice is the notion that by keeping a clean, neat, pious home and filling it with warmth and inviting smells, women are achieving their highest calling. <laughs> Eek. Uh, this ideology promoted heavily by the most popular women's magazines of the day, such as Gaudi's Book published out of Philadelphia between 1830 and 1878. It was the most widely circulated magazine in America prior to the Civil War, reaching 150,000 households. Its editor at the height of its popularity, Sarah Josephina Hale, author of Mary Had a Little Lamb, randomly, uh, used her influence to be the 19th century equivalent of a social influencer, promoting this cult of domesticity. But not every woman, of course, wanted to live this way, uh, such as Annie Oakley. And not every woman could live this way at the time, even if they wanted to. Rural women, especially, often needed to do a lot more to survive and help their family than, you know, light the right fucking candle, keep the house clean. Uh, rural women were required by the nature of their work to be healthy, strong, often working the same hours as their, as their husbands did or equally physically demanding chores. And Annie Oakley, she was born into a rough and rugged rural life. She had to learn skills not taught in Gotti's Lady Book. She had to learn skills like, uh, you know, shooting a squirrel without spoiling all of its meat. 
For Annie's life, learning how to clean a gun was a lot more important than learning how to clean up in the kitchen. Okay, I think the context has been set now. Uh, let's jump into this week's gunslinging, shotgun shooting, time suck timeline, and learn how Annie shot the cult of domesticity all to shit. Right after a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything... Is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. 
but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs caused me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the two grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the one gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. Five grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thank you for listening, Meat Sacks. Get them deals. Go get them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. A quick note about the dates in this timeline before I get into it. Holy shit. Uh, For a relatively simple story, uh, these dates were the hardest to verify out of literally any show we've done so far. Because a lot of the characters in this tale were born into rural, mid-19th century poverty. And because some of them went into showbiz. Uh, during a time and place when tall tales were the norm, facts get pretty hard to nail down. Add to that a lot of lazy 19th century, uh, early, mid-20th century biographers, and you end up with dates and sometimes even names varying significantly from source to source. In one story, Annie's 15 when she meets another important character. In another story, she's 20. In one source, her dad is 46 years old when she's born. In another, he's around 60. Uh, the locations of huge events vary quite a bit. In one telling, an important shooting contest happened in Cincinnati. In another, Greenville. And another, it went down in North Star. All Ohio, but, you know, different places. So if you're an Annie Oakley fan and you're like, hey, that's not right. She was this old when that happened. It happened here, not there. Hey, you're probably right. That probably is how it went down in the telling you came across. But do a little poking around and you'll find many other tellings. Uh, the Wild West is one of my favorite eras of history to explore. And while Annie's story isn't exactly Wild West, she grew up in Ohio, uh, stories about her were very popular in the Wild West. She became a big Wild West figure. She did tour the Wild West. She started a traveling production called Buffalo Bill's Wild West Show. Plenty of yip yip yah with Annie. And again, while I love the Wild West, Wild West journalism sucks. Uh, big stories sold books and papers. So that's what writers wrote. Tall, tall tales. All that being said, I feel pretty good uh, that we're that what we're sharing is you know probably roughly 90% accurate. After digging into a lot of genealogy sites like Ancestry.com and cross-referencing old interviews and having researcher Sophie Evans do the same, and also 90% truth with 10% larger than life gunboat tales thrown in. I'm good with that. It feels right for the genre. Uh, hope you are too. Makes it all a bit more cinematic. Just wanted to state that up top so I didn't feel compelled to constantly point out which dates and names and places I feel better about being accurate than others and risk slowing down uh, and ruining her story as I tell it. So let's meet Annie now. On August 13th, 1860, Annie Oakley, born Phoebe Ann Mosey in a log cabin, less than two miles northwest of Woodland, now Willowdale, in Dark County, Ohio, a rural county along the state's border with Indiana. Uh, Willowdale, very rural. Uh, not even a town right now, just an unincorporated census-designated place. The post office there shut down a, a couple years back. 
1905. Uh, for the last 115 years, it's uh, just been a couple houses. And it was never much more than that. Uh, Willowdale is about five miles, eight kilometers east of the nearest big city of North Star, Ohio. North Star, way bigger town. It has over 200 people. It has a historic Catholic church, and that's about it. Used to have way more people. Used to have almost 300 at the height of its uh, population boom in 1970. Uh, Despite being pretty small and rural, uh, it is very racially diverse. (laughs) This really cracked me up when I came across this. It has... No bearing on today's story, but I wanted to share it with you. The racial makeup uh, is currently 99.52% white. Not 100%. Uh, It's also 0.48% Asian, which means when you do the math that there is literally one Asian person in a town full full of nothing but other white people. Uh, And I bet that one person is pointed at by a lot of other people in town to prove that they're not racist, right? You You know that's true. Come on, I didn't mean anything by that joke. I'm not racist. I'm friends with Mark. Dude, no way I'm racist. Sometimes I say hi to the Asian guy. You know, Mark. How, how can I be racist? I drove to last week's Klan rally with Mark. JK, come on, gosh dang. Uh, North Star folk might be the nicest, most open-minded folk in the nation. I don't know anybody uh, living there. Uh, just thought that was funny. Just seven miles away from Willowdale and 10 miles from North Star is Versailles, Ohio, named after the French city of Versailles, but totally mispronounced because that's how we do shit in America. We don't drink tea out of little porcelain cups with our pinkies out, uh, and we don't speak right. <laughs> we are land primarily of Mushmouse. Uh, Versailles is a real short drive now from Willowdale. It was quite the hike in the days of Annie's youth. Uh, about 2,700 people live there now, and around 1,000 lived there when Annie was born. Annie's parents were Quakers of English descent from Hollidaysburg, Blair County, Pennsylvania. Susan Wise, who was 28 when Annie was born, and Jacob Mosey, who was 61. Her parents had married 12 years before. Uh, Annie was born in 1848 when her mom was, you know, 16, when her dad was 49. <laughs> Yikes. Different times, very different times. Back when the world was full of dudes marrying women who could age-wise be their daughters or even granddaughters on a regular basis. Oh my heck. Uh, to be fair, I don't think all those dudes were pervs or pedophiles uh, at all. Uh, marriage was a lot more about kicking out babies back then than it was about kinky sex. And young women's bodies could kick out more babies and pregnancy complications were more rare for younger moms than older moms. And just, you know, a lot of fucking people died. There wasn't a lot of people to pick from when it came to romance. Uh, Annie's parents moved to a rented farm, later purchased with a with a mortgage in rural Dark County back when the whole county had just over 20,000 people scattered around its 600 square miles. Uh, sometime around 1855, with their three young daughters, Mary Jane, Lydia, and Elizabeth, two more daughters and no sons would be born before Annie, Catherine and Sarah, Catherine would die as a toddler the year before Annie was born. Annie's dad, Jacob, was by all accounts a pleasant, athletic man who even at the age of 61 when Annie was born could still hunt and knock out his farm work as well as any other man. What was her mom like? I don't really know. Not much seems to be written about her other than she was very religious, hardworking. Uh, She loved Annie and her other children very, very much. Annie would have a very close relationship with her mother. And when the Moseys showed up to what is now known as Willowdell and what was then known as Woodland, the community did not offer, like I said earlier, much more than it does now. In time, during Annie's youth, Woodland would boast a buggy shop, an ice house, a saloon, a restaurant, and a cream station. But when her dad, Jacob, arrived, it didn't even have a general store. Wouldn't have one of those until after he died. No railway service in the area either. They were out in the sticks. Annie grew, up, uh, into, or Annie grew into a small child, strong despite her size, with thick, dark hair, blue-gray eyes that people noticed because of her large, direct gaze intense gaze. Annie was a vivacious girl, a tomboy who took no interest in her sister's ragdolls. 
She spent time and stayed with her dad and her brother, John, born two years after she was out in the woods, out on the farm. Uh, together, Jacob, Annie, and little John spent their days picking brush, building fences, butchering cows, tanning their hides. The seller makes shoes. They smoked ham, pickled beans, tucked away apples in the fall before the winter set in. Annie, who always hated her given first name of Phoebe, would also spend hours wandering out in the woods alone, listening to the birds and tracking rabbits. In November of 1960, Abraham Lincoln is elected president, and in December, South Carolina becomes the first Southern state to secede from the Union. The Civil War will begin in April of 1861, and many men from Dark County will fight, will go serve in the military for the Union. Annie's dad, Jacob Mosey, wanted to, but was considered too old for active duty. In the winter of uh, 1866, on a trip to the local general store, 14 miles from their home, Jacob is caught in an early blizzard and half frozen, barely makes it back to the farm. He never recovers from getting stuck out in the cold and soon dies of pneumonia, plunging the family into uh, the first of several financial crises. Getting caught in a blizzard just trying to make it home from the general store. That is some 1866 shit. And he later recalled, mother threw the door wide open into the face of the howling wind. It was a scene she never forgot. Her father sitting upright in the buckboard seat of his wagon, the horse reins wrapped tight around his wrists. His hands were frozen. His speech was gone. When the storm died down, her mom later sent out one of her older daughters to fetch a doctor. The doctor came, but there was little he could do because it was 1866. And doctors were not, compared to today, very good at doctoring. Whiskey, laudanum, saw. In real hospitals where you could be put on like, you know, a ventilator or given antibiotics or pumped full of fluids intravenously, uh, none of that existed. So that March, Annie's father dies in their cabin. Later that same year, Mary Jane, Annie's older sister, dies of tuberculosis at the age of 19. Annie's mother had just lost the two other family members who'd been able to help the most on the family farm and with five other children still living and needing her care. Uh, she had had another daughter, Holda, uh, with Jacob back in 1863, uh, the Mosey family must leave the farm and move to a smaller plot of land. And now they really struggle to get by. Her mom has to sell Pink, the family cow, to pay doctor and funeral bills. She tries to earn a living by nursing, but only makes a buck 25 a week, and it's not enough to live on. Susan is, is, Susan is so poor and desperate that she gives the Bartholomews, a local family, her youngest child holder to raise. How gut-wrenching must that have been? Dire straits. Giving one of your kids away because you just you can't afford to raise them all. Holy shit. Uh, my family went through some tougher times when I was younger, but nothing in the ballpark of that. Imagine being poor little Holda. Imagine being anyone in that family. Sorry, kiddo. Mom literally cannot afford to keep you alive, so off you go. Annie, Lydia, Elizabeth, Sarah, John, say goodbye to your baby sister. I know you've grown kind of attached to her over the last four years, but she is a, Barth a Bartholomew now. Adios, kiddo. Frontier life. I love living in 1867. Fuck yeah, bro. Nice. Uh, also in 1867, Annie's mom gets remarried to a local man, Daniel Brumball. That November, Daniel was a close neighbor whose wife had died several years earlier, whose grown children had all now left the house. And she uh, she marries him because uh, he's single and he lives next door. Single? Check. Lives next door? Check. Cool. He has checked off all the necessary criteria for rural 1867 marriage. Daniel was 58. Susan was now 36. Susan would have one more child with Daniel, Emily, about nine months after getting married. What a life! Uh, back in the days before reliable birth control, back when the birth control available was frowned upon due to religious beliefs, back when you married your neighbor, not because you were in love, but because he was single and he was there and you needed an extra set of hands to help around the farm. Or you might have to give away all of your kids. So grateful in this moment to live during a much, much better time to be alive. And yet in 2020, sometimes I still complain. I'll complain to my wife about like uh, uh, stuff like how many hours I spend on the on the computer, 
And uh, I probably shouldn't. After, you know what? After I finish this recording, I think I should take myself out back and kick my own ass for having the nerve to complain about such things. Hey, me, shut the fuck up and get back to work. Be very glad you're not an Ohio farmer in the 1860s. Now back to pioneer misery. Shortly after getting Susan pregnant, Daniel gets into some sort of accident that is never fully described and can no longer work. Sweet. He's of no help now. He's a burden. Susan and her kids are worse off than before. Uh, You know, she has two more mouths to help feed, her new husbands and her new babies. Anxious to help the family, Annie begins to set traps now for birds in the nearby woods, trying to bring home some, some meat, and she does. She brings home quail and grouse. But trying to catch enough food to really help the family, just using traps, it's not cutting it. To do some real hunting, to bag a significant amount of wild game, she needs a gun. Annie, get your gun. In late 1868, eight-year-old Annie sneaks her father's old rifle down from above the fireplace, packs it with some powder, heads off into the woods, and shoots a squirrel. Her mother, instead of being pleased, is horrified and forbids her to ever fire a gun again. Damn it, Susan! Let go of your gender role expectations. Let that girl put some meat on the plates. In Annie's own words, she later recounted this event. She said, I saw a squirrel run down over the grass in front of the house, through the orchard, and stop on a fence to get a hickory nut. It was a wonderful shot, going right through the head from side to side. (laughs) That is a wonderful shot. Uh, It's not like she took her dad's rifle down to the local gun range either. You know, in practice, there wasn't one. You know, she didn't get to spend a bunch of time properly sighting it in. No scope. She just lined the old school front and rear open sights, held that rifle steady, at eight years old, blasted a squirrel through the fucking head on the first try. Not sure if you've seen a lot of squirrel heads, but if you haven't, uh, they're pretty small as heads go. Maybe like golf ball size, definitely not like softball or basketball sized. Uh, if she had shot the, the ultra rare basketball sized headed squirrel, I think that would have made it into the story, that detail. Uh, I think the phrase steady Eddie should be replaced with steady Annie. Uh, Annie also recounted, my mother was perfectly horrified when I began shooting and tried to keep me in school but I would run away and go quail shooting in the woods or trim my dress with wreaths of wildflowers. She was a, she was a nature child. On March 15th, 1870, at age nine, Annie is now admitted to the Dark County Infirmary along with her sister, Sarah Ellen, in Greenville, who was 11. Uh, the infirmary was a big group home that housed the homeless, the mentally ill, and orphans. So yeah, an orphanage essentially for Annie. Uh, everyone ba- uh, you know, back then just kind of got thrown in together in different places. Her mom just couldn't afford to take care of them, now has to give two more of her kids away. Dear God, the struggle was oh so real with this poor family. Uh, Greenville, about 20 miles from Willowdale, short 20-minute drive now. Back then, a long day's wagon ride. According to Annie's autobiography, she was put in the care of the infirmary superintendent, Samuel Crawford Eddington, and his wife, Nancy, who taught her to sew and decorate. In 1870, Greenville was a booming town of three rail lines, four pike roads, two newspapers, the Democrat, and the Journal. Life revolved around the public square, which stood within the boundaries of old Fort Greenville and extended down Broadway to 3rd Street. As the name suggested, Broadway was a wide street uh, bordered on both sides by a score of businesses. There was Farmer's Bank, Tomlinson and Son's Saddle Shop, uh, and Judy and Miller's Furniture Store. A man could get a drink at Guthiel's Saloon or take a room at the Broadway Hotel. There was a bookstore, a hardware store, a baker, a fur trader, Alan Lamott. Go get your fur from Alan. Uh, It was a bustling metropolis of over 2,000 people in 1870, almost 13,000 now. Uh, In Greenville, Annie was then, this is terrible, bound out, was the term, to a local family to help care for their infant son. On the false promise, these people were terrible, of 50 cents per week, which would be about 10 bucks a week in 2019, and an education. Uh, Man, at just nine years old, she is now being sent away from her family with her 11-year-old sister. And then, just after showing up, she's sent away from that sister 
At nine, just a little third grader, age-wise, dad's dead. Mom and most of her siblings are a day's travel away. Her, her remaining sister is across town, doesn't get to see her. The couple Annie was loaned out to originally wanted someone who could pump water, cook, and who was uh, older and bigger, preferably. And apparently they were disappointed with Annie's small size, and they sound like a couple uh, real pieces of shit. Annie spent two years as their slave. They never paid her what they were supposed to. They treated her horrifically. She did what they said, uh, which was a lot, or she was beat. Sometimes, even when she did do what they said, she was still beat. One time, the wife put Annie out in the freezing cold without shoes as a punishment because she had fallen asleep while sewing. Uh, she'd fallen asleep out of exhaustion from being worked like a dog with all of her chores. Annie wrote about this later saying, I got up at four o'clock in the morning, got breakfast, milked the cows, washed the dishes, skimmed the milk, fed the calves and pigs, pumped the water for the cattle, fed the chickens, rocked the baby to sleep, weeded the garden, picked wild blackberries, got dinner. Mother wrote for me to come home. They would not let me go. I was held a prisoner. Annie referred to this couple for the rest of her life as the wolves. Even in her autobiography, she never revealed their real names. Incredible how some of us meat sacks are able to treat other human beings. In the spring of 1872, 11-year-old Annie runs away from the wolves. She tied what little clothes she had into a bundle, ran to the closest rail station, boarded a car, where she sat next to some kind-looking man. She didn't even have a ticket, right? She told, tells this guy she's running away, that she only had 48 cents to her name. He pays her fare, makes sure she gets off at the right stop. She never got this guy's name, but wrote later that, I prayed to God each night to keep the good man who helped me get away from the wolves. Hail Nimrod! There are lots of good people in the world and always have been. Not just wolves. Uh, she returned to the Eddingtons, who ran that dark county infirmary. They had no idea what was going, going on, apparently. Didn't know how badly she was being mistreated. Made certain she would never have to return to the wolves. Uh, not sure whether or not her older sister, Sarah Ellen, was still there. Sounds like she'd left to return home before Annie showed up. So family-wise, she's alone, but at least she's with a nice couple. The Eddingtons treated her as a daughter, let her stay in their living quarters. She made friends with the Eddington children, began attending school with them, where the kids called her Topsy, because when she smiled, she showed all of her teeth, just like some little girl in Uncle Tom's cabin. Apparently, shortly after enrolling in school, the he-wolf member of the wolf showed up at her school and tried to basically kidnap her. The Eddingtons, who'd seen scars on Annie's back from her beatings, came and had this he-wolf piece of shit thrown out of the school, threatened to report him to the authorities if he ever returned. Too bad they didn't take him out back by the school and just put a, put a bullet in his head. Annie later wrote, that night I slept untroubled for the first time in long months. Uh, the Eddingtons paid Annie to work as a seamstress. She sewed dresses, made quilts for the infirmary residents. She learned to embroider, stitched fancy cuffs and collars to brighten the orphans' dark dresses. So as a kid, she's doing nice things to make the orphans feel good about themselves. Uh, in early 1875, when Annie is 14, she finally returns to her mother's home. Her mom had recently gotten married again. On November 25th, 1874, Susan had married Joseph Shaw. Uh, who's around 72 years old. Susan was now 43 or 44. There just wasn't a lot to pick from around there. Uh, Joseph did not lead Susan and her remaining children out of poverty. Before their marriage, Joseph had sold his farm intending to buy another one. And then a man listed in some sources as a scoundrel cheated him out of all but 500 bucks. Maybe some dude running some uh, 1870s mid-level marketing scheme. Give me your money, Joseph, and I will double it in less than a week. I've been blessed with the Midas touch by the good God, Amway, maker of fine, environmentally friendly and affordable household cleaners. The best price point line with the Amway home intro bundle, which now comes with a free tote bag. If you can just sign right here. Joseph used the 500 bucks he had left to put a down payment on 27 acres of land, and he hired a carpenter to build a small house near the North Star Crossroad, not far from Woodland. 
Now, Shaw had to pay the bank for his home uh, in regular loan payments plus interest. Grandpap, as the children called their new stepfather, took a job delivering mail to Greenville, but he didn't make enough money to make those mortgage payments. And it looked like Annie and her family were going to be out of yet another farm and back in dire straits again. But then young Annie, the hero of our story, decides to save the day. She was able to use her stepdad's rifle to start hunting again. Mom had given up now on keeping her from shooting. And, she, and Annie was real good at hunting, like, like the best. She was already helping to feed the family, uh, you know, early into her hunting, providing most of the meat for the family, actually. Now she wanted to see if she could trade some of that game for money. She knew that local hunters would trade their wild birds and game for staples such as flour, ammunition, traps, and harnesses. So after working uh, back at the Eddington, excuse me, Eddington's again, the new family farm was a lot closer to the infirmary. Uh, one day on her way home uh, from work to the new family farm, she stopped by the local Katzenberger Brothers grocery store at the corner of Main Street and the public square in Greenville. She proposed to the brothers that they buy any small game she shipped to town, wanted cash. And when they agreed on a price, Annie went home and got to shooting. Annie got her gun. And in just one year, she made enough extra money selling games she'd shot 200 bucks to pay the rest of the mortgage off on the family farm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hail Lucifina and hail Annie Oakley. And she's doing this as her second job as a fucking 14-year-old. For the rest of her life, Annie would now earn a living with a gun. Annie was a, a familiar, though strange sight around Woodland and Greenville. She was a slender girl dressed in copper-toed boots and, a long, yar and long yarn stockings. She wore a short, sturdy dress with knickerbockers, heavy mittens with a trigger finger stitched in, and spent countless hours in the woods and the fields enjoying nothing more than the crunch of leaves under her feet and the smell of burnt gunpowder and game blood. The Katzenberger Katzen brothers took a liking to Annie, and one Christmas they sent her a special present, a can of DuPont Eagle Ducking Black Powder, five pounds a shot, and two boxes of percussion caps. Around the same time, Annie was given what she later called her first real gun, a Parker Brothers 16-gauge breech-loading hammer complete with 100 brass shells. Uh, and this is not the Parker Brothers game company that was bought and absorbed by Hasbro, and the one that made Monopoly and Risk. This is the Parker Brothers firearms company that made mostly shotguns from 1867 to 1942, popular still with firearm collectors. Oh, with her new fancy top-of-the-line gun and ammo, Annie shot more game than ever before. She shipped packages of game by mail coach to the Katzenbergers, who in turn shipped the game to hotels in Cincinnati, only 80 miles from Greenville, to be cooked up and eaten. Little country Annie feeding fine diners in Cincinnati hotels. Uh, she also started entering local hunting-based contests. By the time she was 15, she had shot so much game and entered and won so many local turkey shoots, a uh, popular form of entertainment at the time, that she was barred from entering more of these contests so someone else could have a chance at winning. Uh, she, she'd end up proving she was one of the best shots in the world, uh, if not the best. Later, man or woman, I'm, I'm not surprised those dark county folks just uh, couldn't compete. Thanksgiving Day, 1875. Big day. Big day for Annie. Perfect timing for the Thanksgiving uh, week release of this episode. Uh, this is an opportunity and shooting performance she would put on that would change her life forever. The Bauman and Butler Shooting Act came to Cincinnati that Thanksgiving. As a publicity stunt before their actual theater show in town, traveling show marksman Frank E. Butler, an Irish immigrant, one half of Bauman and Butler, placed a $100 bet, equivalent to $2,300 in 2019, or in today's money, excuse me, with Cincinnati hotel owner Jack Frost, that Butler could beat any local shooter in a marksmanship competition. Little did he know that Jack had been getting a lot of fresh game from the Katzenberger brothers, who ran that grocery store back in Greenville. And Jack had heard for months they'd been getting a good portion of their meat from the best shot they'd ever seen. 
Annie Oakley. And Frank would now be going head-to-head with a petite, five-foot-nothing, 15-year-old country girl. Let's meet Frank. The man who become Annie's husband was a handsome showbiz fella. Born in County Longford, Ireland in 1847. One of those stupid immigrants I mentioned earlier. JK. Uh, Frank would have been around 28 years old when they met. He was slightly below average in height, had dark hair, trim mustache, quick sense of humor. Liked to tell stories and play jokes on his friends. He was an extrovert who enjoyed people, could strike up a conversation with anybody. And he was a softie. He was a sentimental fella. He liked to write poetry about nature and friendship and the passing of the seasons. His life took off in a new direction when he joined an amateur show, a type of theatrical group that was very common in the 1870s, several years before meeting Annie. Uh, Initially, Frank trained a troop of dogs and went on stage with them. Frank liked to tell a story about a theater he'd once played in Philadelphia, those dogs. The theater was next door to a fire station. According to Frank, one of his newly trained dogs was an old fire dog. And when the fire alarm rang, just as Frank was getting ready to go on stage, the old dog instinctively took off for the fire, and then the rest of Frank's canine troop followed that dog. Uh, leaving him with no dogs to perform for the crowd. Uh, sometime in the early 1870s, Frank learned to do some trick shooting, eventually scrubbed his dog act for the most part. He did bring along a, a pooch, one of them, on the road to add a little extra showmanship to portions of his performance. He specialized in trick shooting. Uh, trick shooting became very popular uh, at the time, and he was a, a good at it. He was a very accurate shot. He could shoot while sighting through a mirror. He could fire a rifle while bending over backwards. His most popular act was shooting an apple in half off of the head of his pet poodle, George. Uh, I get the theatrics, but what a horrible trick. Fuck it up one time, you just killed the pet you love in front of a tra- traumatized crowd. Seems a bit unnecessary. Uh, now back to Frank meeting Annie. After Jack Frost paid 100 bucks that Annie would beat Frank at his own game, she headed to Cincinnati. Uh, Cincinnati, uh, Lured by that $100 prize, Annie competes against and defeats Butler. Uh, I talked about this in another podcast. I do incredible feats. Obviously, we're going into much more depth here today. Uh, She has 25 targets in a row, 25 out of 25, literally never missed, while he missed his final shot. No nerves at all for uh, her first, you know, really kind of high-pressure performance. And Butler is smitten by the diminutive crack shot. According to the Annie Oakley Foundation, uh, according to their website, the match was run according to the regular rules of trap shooting. Frank shot 24 out of 25 birds, Annie then won, killing all 25 of her birds. Frank would later say uh, he had lost as soon as he saw the pretty and shy 15-year-old girl step to the mark. What is certain is he had fallen for her. In his professional shooting act, he was assisted by a dog, a French poodle named George, and Annie fell for George. So Frank then courted Annie by sending her letters and cards signed as uh, as George. Adorable! Oh my heck! That might have just made my Grinch heart grow three times its size. Uh, before leaving town, Frank invites Annie to the theater to see his proper act with his shooting partner. Uh, she goes, and she makes friends with Frank's poodle, George. Apparently, after Frank shot an apple off George's head, <laughs> insane, uh, George picked up a piece of it and then laid it at Annie's feet, and their romance began. Uh, this part of the story might fall into that 10% of this is a uh, uh, tall tale, th- that category I referenced earlier. I don't know, maybe not. Maybe it did happen. Maybe George wasn't giving her an apple slice because he liked her. Maybe it was a desperate cry for help. Please, lady, please save me. This complete fucking maniac shoots a goddamn apple off my head every time we make it to a new town. He's gonna miss one of these days. Everyone misses eventually. Don't you see? And what then? What happens to George? Let me tell you. George's head fucking explodes like the apple. Why? Why is only George the Poodle thinking of this? Why does no one care about the George? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, George would continue to play a role in their relationship. Annie, who had never been courted by anyone before, was nervous at the prospect of romance. And so when Frank... Left to perform with a circus, he 
you know, he pretended the letters, like I mentioned, were coming from George, not from him. At Christmas, George even sent Annie a box of candy. Uh, later on, Frank finally sent Annie a poem. He wrote, there's a charming little girl. She's many miles from here. She's a loving little fairy. You'd fall in love to see her. Her presence would remind you of an angel in the skies. And you bet I love this little girl with raindrops in her eyes. Okay. You know, I'm no poetry expert, but I feel like he was a better shot than he was a poet. Uh, very nice gesture, though. Uh, a few weeks later, George the Poodle sent Annie a poem. And it said, bitch, I gave you that fucking apple slice and he's still shooting at me. He'll kill me. He'll kill, he'll kill sweet George, Annie. Why does no one care about the George? Obviously, that never happened. Uh, on August 23rd, 1876 in Cincinnati, Frank and Annie get married. So the, the romance works. Uh, this is Frank's second marriage. He married a woman named Henrietta Saunders back in 1870. They'd had two children, Edward and Katie, back in New Jersey, where Frank had worked a variety of odd jobs and then divorced after just a few years of marriage. And back in the days when dudes just seemed to casually say goodbye to their children forever, it seems like this is what Frank did. Hard not to judge, but it was a very different era. Couldn't just hop on a flight to, to see other people, I guess. I don't know. Shortly after Frank and Annie's wedding ceremony, Frank put Annie on a train, sent her to Erie, Pennsylvania to attend a Catholic school while he traveled with his new shooting partner, John Graham. John was from Erie and his mom, Catherine, ran a boarding house there. And Annie stayed with Catherine while Graham and Frank toured the variety circuit. Uh, Butler got work with the Cell Brothers Circus, joining a show that featured 60 tons of animal actors around this time, touring with the circus. He performed feats of marksmanship while, while George the Poodle prayed for the good Lord to bring swift death to his trigger-happy master each and every night. Praise Bojangles. In early 1882, 21-year-old Annie leaves Erie, joins Frank and John Graham on tour. On May 1st, she was with Butler in Springfield, Ohio, only around 60 miles from where Annie grew up. Frank and his partner, John Graham, were scheduled for a show there at the Crystal Hall Theater, and Graham became ill and could not perform. And it was decided then and there that Mrs. B, as she was introduced that night, would go on stage and hold objects for Mr. B to shoot uh, to replace Graham. And then Mrs. B openly rebelled. No, I want to fire every other shot, she told her husband in front of the crowd. Butler agreed. Well, these theatrics might have been planned out beforehand. And then he took the first shot and hit the target. Annie shot next, and the audience groaned when Mrs. B missed. And it seems as if she did this on purpose to gain sympathy from the audience, build up some tension and suspense, because she did not miss again. The audience stood up to applaud her, standing ovation after she finished her last shot. She was a big hit. The act was so successful that she joined Butler as his permanent partner. This is one of many versions of how Annie Oakley's stage career officially began. Here's another one I like. Frank said it was his habit to miss a target intentionally a couple times to work up the interest of the audience. But on the night of Annie's first big show, try as he might, after he uh, intentionally missed a few times, then he could not hit the mark uh, when he was trying to. And he missed over and over, about a dozen times. And then a burly spectator staggered up to the front of the house, pointed at Annie and shouted, let the girl shoot. Annie had never practiced the particular shot they'd set up, but Frank said she hit the target on her second try. And then he added, the crowd went into an uproar, and when I attempted to resume my act, I was howled down, and Annie Oakley continued. However it began, Frank, and, uh, Frank made Annie his new partner, and the new shooting team of Butler and Oakley was born. Sources don't say, but I'm guessing John Graham, a little pissed to be out of a job. Uh, also guessing George the Poodle was fucking thrilled. Uh, maybe, his, maybe his days of getting apples blast off his head were finally over. Uh, they weren't actually but maybe he could hope that. Uh, Annie and Frank Butler based themselves in Cincinnati around this time. Oakley, uh, she took a stage name uh, of Oakley that is believed to have been taken from the city's neighborhood of Oakley, where they resided. Oakley's still a Cincinnati neighborhood, about 10,000 people on the outer east side of the city. 
Uh, by the following year, in 1883, the young married couple were touring the vaudeville circuit on a regular basis. In contrast to the behavior of the more risque female performers of the day, Oakley dressed conservatively, let her rifle do the talking. Butler handed the business and promotional aspects of their act while Oakley became the star on stage. So unconventional in so many ways. Breadwinner wife, breadwinner wife who is a performer who is not making a living on sex appeal, husband in the support role, husband who was the star, now taking a backseat to his wife, a wife who was a very big star in a very male-dominated arena. Right, all this in the, the late 19th century. Little is known of Annie Oakley's early days on stage except that she and Frank played variety venues and skating rinks honing their act, living out of a suitcase, staying in inexpensive hotels and boarding houses uh, with George the Poodle. Annie later said, we never rode in Pullman's those days if we could make a day trip. That extra money meant gloves, hose, and pretty hair ribbons so I could look neat at rehearsals. Uh, Pullman's were like the nicer train carriages, by the way. Kind of think uh, first-class tickets on a plane. Annie spent her nights performing and her days practicing the fancy shots that Frank taught her. George the Poodle lurked in the background watching from the shadows. Staying close enough to not be forgotten, make sure he gets fed, staying far enough away to keep Frank from shooting too many apples off his head. On May 19th, 1883, Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show opens in Omaha, Nebraska. Annie has no idea it even exists at this point. This is the show that will make her famous worldwide. Let's meet Bill and his show. Uh, William Frederick Cody, born in LeClaire, Iowa in 1846. While he was still a child, his, his family moved to Leavenworth, Kansas. Talked about that a lot last week, uh, or at least referenced it in the Bloody Bender Suck. Cody left home at the young age of only 11 to herd cattle and work as a driver on a wagon train, crossing the Great Plains several times. What the fuck? How did people grow up so fast back then? How the hell is this dude herding cattle at 11 years old? I was completely worthless at 11 years old. I literally couldn't even beat off yet, <laughs> let alone herd some cattle. These 19th century folk, man, they make some of us uh, modern Americans look soft. Uh, Bill then went on to do some fur trapping and gold mining, then joined the Pony Express in 1860 when he was 14. Of course he did. I'm surprised he wasn't a grandpa yet by 14. I love that he, I love that he did fur trapping and gold mining. Then at 14, joined the Pony, Pony Express. Uh, dude was checking a lot of shit, shit off of a Wild West fantasy bucket list in his uh, young teen years. Herding cattle, check. Wagon train, check. Fur trapping, gold mining, Pony Express rider, check, check, check. Uh, when he was just 17, he fought in the Civil War. He fought uh, for the Union for two years between 1863 and 1865. Uh, about the only thing he didn't seem to do as a young man that was very Wild West uh, was get into any gunslinger high noon quick draw showdowns. Did shoot dudes, though. Between his Civil War duty and numerous skirmishes with uh, many American Indians, he was rumored to have killed many men in his younger years. Then after the Civil War, Cody scouted for the Army, gained the nickname Buffalo Bill as a hunter. Cody signed a contract to supply the Kansas Pacific, Kansas Pacific Railroad workers with buffalo meat, and he sure as shit fulfilled that task. Cody is uh, rumored to have killed 4,282 buffalo in 18 months, in 1867 and 1868. And then he got his nickname. Cody and another hunter, Bill Comstock, apparently both wanted the nickname of Buffalo Bill, which is hilarious to me, but they both couldn't have it. They agreed that they couldn't both have it. One of them got to have it. Two Wild West tough guys. Two mighty buffalo hunters, both named Bill, out there going, I'm the one and only Buffalo Bill. The hell you say, Cody? No one shoots more buffalo than Buffalo Bill Comstock. Take that lie out your mouth, crybaby Comstock. My mama shoots more buffalo than you. No one shoots more buffalo than Buffalo Bill Cody. I shot three buffalo before they even cut my unbiblical cord. Cody, you never did no such thing. I shot two buffalo just now while you were spitting out that fool lie. 
two? Is that all you shot, Comstock? Hell, I killed myself three buffalo this morning while I was sitting in the outhouse preparing my morning defecation. You get it. I realized both those guys sounded exactly like, <laughs> maybe they did in real life. You don't know. You didn't listen to them. Comstock, like Cody, was an accomplished dude. He was a noted scout, guide, interpreter, uh, chief of scouts at Fort Wallace, Kansas. He had the reputation of being one of the most successful buffalo hunters, if not the most successful on the plains. Jo- uh, General George Armstrong Custer once described him as perfect in horsemanship, fearless in manner, a splendid hunter, and a gentleman by instinct. And the two men competed in a bizarre eight-hour Buffalo shooting match to win the exclusive right to use the Buffalo Bill name. Uh, Cody whooped Comstock's ass. He killed 68 Buffalo to Comstock's 48. And then Comstock would take the nickname of Medicine Bill, which doesn't sound as good. I feel like he, he did get the short end of the nickname stick. Uh, he got this nickname when he cut off a man's finger in order to save him from a rattlesnake bite. This is some Wild West shit. What an interesting lives these dudes led. Uh, Buffalo Bill Cody's life in the West offered the stuff from which legends were made. He soon was popularized in newspaper accounts and dime novels. And this notoriety led to showbiz. That's how to do it in the Wild West. Buffalo Bill's show business career began on December 17th, 1872 in Chicago when he was 26. Scouts of the Prairie was a drama created by dime novelist Ned Buntline, who appeared in it with Cody and another well-known scout, Texas Jack Omohundro. The show was a success, despite one critic's characterization of Cody as a good-looking fellow, tall and straight as an arrow, but ridiculous as an actor. Good thing that critic wasn't a buffalo, or Cody would have shot him dead. Uh, Other critics noted Cody's manner of charming the audience and the realism he brought to his performance. Actor or not, Buffalo Bill was an entertaining showman. The following season, Cody organized his own acting troupe, the Buffalo Bill Combination. The troupe show scouts of the plains included Buffalo Bill, Texas Jack, Cody's old friend, Wild Bill Hickok. A lot of Bills back then. Uh, have to suck Wild Bill Hickok someday. A lot of yip, yip, yah in that colorful character. Uh, Wild Bill and Texas Jack eventually left the show, but Cody continued staging a variety of plays until 1882. That year, the Wild West show was conceived. It was an outdoor spectacle designed to both educate and entertain using a cast of hundreds as well as live buffalo, elk, cattle, and other animals. Cody's partner that first season was a dentist and exhibition shooter, Dr. W.F. Carver. Cody and Carver took the show subtitled Rocky Mountain and Prairie Exhibition across the country to a widespread popular acclaim, favorable reviews, and launching, and they launched a genre of outdoor entertainment that thrived for three decades and survived in fits and starts for almost three more. The idea for a show like that had been around for a long time. The earliest antecedent to Buffalo Bill's Wild West show may have actually been staged in France in the middle of the 16th century when 50 Brazilian natives were brought to Rouen to populate a replica of their village. Elevated walkways enabled royal visitors to watch the natives pretend to go about their normal lives. Exotic elements of American Indian life later became staples of European and American circuses. <laughs> that French show, how fucking weird. Literally a, literally a human zoo. That a human zoo. <sighs> uh, horse shows and menageries with exotic animals had been popular in America since the 18th century. The birth of the Wild West as a successful genre, was largely a product of personality, dramatic acumen, and good timing. Uh, the golden age of outdoor shows in America began in the 1880s, and with his theater experience, Buffalo Bill already was skilled in uh, the use of press agentry and poster advertising. His fame and credibility as a Westerner lent star appeal and an aura of authenticity. Most importantly, Cody gave the show a dramatic narrative structure. Features of his show, such as the Pony Express, the Wagon Train, Attack on the Stagecoach, recreated specific and well-known events. Spectacles such as Cowboy Fun or the Tableau of American Indian Life usually served as a prelude to some dramatic event such as a battle scene. It's a big show. 
Skill acts such as sharpshooting with a pistol and a rifle, wing shooting with a shotgun, roping, and riding not only showcase star performers, the show's narration linked those skills to survival in the frontier west, making these performances seem important and high stakes. An orator boomed the script to the audience from an elevated platform in the arena. The circus band became the cowboy band and backed the arena action with appropriate mood-setting music. The same skits and music uh, were later easily adapted to film and television westerns. This is like the first westerns long before TV. I watched a toned-down version of one of these shows in Virginia City, Nevada a few years ago with uh, Lindsay and the kids. This is cool. I, I would have loved to have seen Buffalo Bill show. The next 20 years saw the rise and fall of dozens of smaller-scale Wild West shows. Uh, the most successful was Colonel Fred Cummins, whose uh, Congress at the Pan-American Exposition in Buffalo, New York in 1901 included both Calamity Jane and the great suit leader, Red Cloud. Doesn't appear that we're related. Uh, digging into my family tree at Ancestry.com. Too many crazy Scots-Irish bastards born into America back then. So many different Cumminses. Uh, in the late 1890s, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show had become a huge production. It had as many as 500 cast and staff members, including 25 cowboys, a dozen cowgirls, 100 uh, Native Americans, women, children, uh, all fed three hot meals a day, cooked on a on 20-foot-long ranges. The show generated its own electricity and staffed its own fire department at one point. Performers lived in wall tents during long stands or slept in railroad cars when the show moved daily. Business on the back lot was carried on in what one reporter called a babble of languages. Expenses were as high as $4,000 a day, and by 1899, Buffalo Bill's Wild West was covering over 11,000 miles in 200 days and given 341 performances in 132 cities and towns across America. The Wild West show was also an early opportunity for women in show business, uh, where they didn't have to rely on appearing overtly sexy. Women writers at first used side saddles, but by the 1890s, they you know, would appear as regular rancheras or cowgirls, dressed for work and not as objects of attraction. By the turn of the century, it was not uncommon for women like Tad Lucas to ride buck and broncos in the arena. Women also played traditional dramatic roles as prairie Madonnas or as American Indian captives. Also, surviving records indicate that Buffalo Bill, at least, uh, paid women equally uh, with men, which was not the norm. Buffalo Bill, like Annie Oakley, did shit his own way. And Annie Oakley and Frank Butler will meet Bill soon. Uh, now that we know all about Bill, let's jump back into Annie's timeline. March 19th, 1884, Butler and Oakley perform in St. Paul, Minnesota, in front of an audience that includes famous American Indian warrior Sitting Bull, who had defeated General George Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn in 1876. He, too, was now a performer at this point in his life. Sitting Bull was a strange sight to a lot of the white folk of primarily Scandinavian descent living in St. Paul. His hair, long and black, parted exactly in the middle each half plastered and bound with otter skin and a strand that fell to his waist. He wore a calico shirt, a waistcoat of plush uh, brocade and blue trousers bordered with a fancy braid and dotted with brass buttons. His feet thrust into moccasins with India rubber soles. He never said, oofta, hangi bangi, even one time. Trips were nothing new to Sitting Bull, who made his home now at the Standing Rock Reservation at Fort Yates. He had been to Bismarck to celebrate the opening of the Northern Pacific Railroad gone along on the last great buffalo hunt in September 1883 before Buffalo Bill killed them all. Uh, kind of not kidding about uh, all the buffalo there. Buffalo were way overhunted. Should have mentioned that earlier in the mid-19th century. This is insane to me, these stats. Uh, in the early 1800s, there were an estimated 50 to 60 million buffalo, wild buffalo, roaming the plains of America. By 1884, there were 325. 325 wild bison left in the U.S. 60 million to just over 300. 
And shit like that is why hunting is now regulated. Uh, if it wasn't, the bad hunters would fuck everything up for the good hunters. And there would be no deer, elk, moose, et cetera, to put in your deep freeze. Uh, Sitting Bull was in St. Paul this March with Major James McLaughlin, the agent at Standing Rock who accompanied Sitting Bull on a full-blown tour of the city. And on Wednesday night, March 19, Sitting Bull went to the Olympic Theater on 7th Street near Jackson to see the Arlington and Fields combination billed as the greatest ag ag uh, aggregation of talent ever to appear in St. Paul. Sitting Bull walked to the parquet, sat down in a prominent seat in Box B. From there, he watched the Wurtz brothers do acrobatics, heard Miss Allie Jackson sing a medley of songs, and saw a variety of other performers, including Annie Oakley. He was there when Annie Oakley bounded on stage and snuffed a burning candle out with a bullet. Mesmerized by her marksmanship, the famous chief then sent 65 bucks to her hotel in order to get an autographed photograph. How cool is that? Famous Wild West legend sending money to Annie's hotel hoping to get a signed picture. First collection. Uh, Oakley later recalled, I sent him back his money and a photograph with my love and a message to say I would call the following morning. The old man was so pleased with me. He insisted upon adopting me and I was then and there christened Little Sure Shot. In addition to a nickname that followed Oakley for the rest of her life, Sittenbull also reportedly gave her a pair of moccasins, the pair he had worn at the Battle of Little Bighorn. That's how much he respected her. That's how much he admired her. I love that so much. Uh, Sitting Bull and Annie Oakley parted in St. Paul that March, but their paths would cross again. They'd be friends for the, for the rest of his life. He headed west back to Standing Rock. She headed east towards Ohio to begin a tour with the Sells Brothers Circus. The two became even closer friends the following year when Sitting Bull joined Buffalo Bill's Wild West show for a four-month stint. He is a dear, faithful old friend, and I have great respect and affection for him, Oakley wrote of Sitting Bull. After a couple of years on the vaudeville circuit, Butler and Oakley signed with the Sell Brothers Circus for a 40-week engagement in April of 1884. That year, the circus visits 187 towns in 13 states, journeying some 11,000 miles, a lot of time on the railroad. Uh, by all accounts, the Sell Brothers Circus was something to see. Sells was coming with 50 cages of live wild animals, and as the report in the papers went, just 50, no more, no less, embracing every known type of beast, bird, reptile, and deep sea monster. Sells boasted the biggest and only $57,000 pair of stupendous living hippopotamuses, the biggest and only full-grown living giraffe, a $22,000 two-horned rhinoceros, and the biggest and only 50,000 Arctic aquarium of amphibious monsters. All this stuff, the only, only things of their kind uh, traveled around the U.S. at this time. Uh, the star of stars of the show was Emperor, a giant elephant, who led 10 teams of elephants drawing 10 golden chariots. That's how it's described. And it was also described that the only thing small about the cell circus was Chima, a man billed as the Chinese dwarf and, it's, and a man billed as having the smallest adult body that contains a soul. A wee bit politically incorrect <laughs> for 2020. Uh, okay, I guess, in 1884. This guy was 28 inches tall, weighed 40 pounds, and lived to the age of 88. Toured for years before retiring to Knox, Indiana. Annie Oakley and Frank were billed as champion rifle shots in this uh, entertainment package, and Annie filled in other parts of the circus as well. She uh, rode side saddle in the Rose Garland entree, doubled as Mrs. Old 1-2 in a pantomime in which Frank played Quack, uh, Quaker Starchback. It was a comic act starring the clown Humpty Dumpty and the pantaloon Old 1-2. And Annie played Old 1-2's wife that whole season of 1884 as the circus train wound its way from Ohio, Illinois, Kansas into Missouri, Arkansas, and Texas. The couple welcomed the steady pay, but did grow tired of the incessant travel under difficult conditions. Then in late 1884, tragedy struck. George the Poodle was brought back into the act. Why does no one care about George? Uh, George was old for a poodle at this point. 
14 years old. His hearing was going. Uh, animal lovers, this is going to be rough. I'll prep you for this. Uh, Frank had developed a slight tremor in his shooting hand around this time, and the combination of the tremor and George's age would prove to be pretty tragic. To up the ante and make his old trick more dramatic, Frank started against Annie's wishes, placing crab apples instead of full-sized apples upon George's head. If you've never seen a crab apple, they are considerably smaller than a golden Fuji or Red Delicious. And one night in Omaha, Frank's aim was off. Too far off to hit such a little apple. And apparently Frank shot George in the right ear, close to the skull in front of the crowd. And it was terrible. Uh, people were screaming. Children were crying. One woman fainted. The dog would live. But his entire right ear would have to be removed, and he would suffer permanent hearing loss. Uh, Bojangles not enjoying this part of the story. His hackles are up. And unfortunately, this would not uh, be George's last performance. Frank was determined to teach George to enjoy performing again. Uh, as soon as the bandage, oh my God, was off his head, George was back up on stage. Another tiny apple perched on his now one-eared head. Uh, Bojangles just snapped at me. Easy, Bojangles. Uh, I didn't do it. Frank Butler did. Bad dog. I need to muzzle Bojangles for this next part. Actually, I don't. He just left the studio. Okay. In Amarillo, not more than a month later, George misses an important cue, probably due to his hearing loss. And Frank fires as the poodle moves and he shoots the dog in his right front leg, shattering the bone. And he rushes to the stage, picks George up, carries him off. A vet backstage is able to save his life, but unfortunately, the leg is lost. And more unfortunately, Frank Butler is not done with this trick. Oh my God. Even though Annie is now threatening him with divorce, Frank insists that the dog still wants to perform. He says he can make him enjoy it. He, he brings George back on stage about a month later. Why does no one care about the George? And the next few performances somehow go okay. But then in Charlotte, George, now struggling to sit still and balance his apple, overcorrects, sits up too straight as Frank shoots. Frank shoots this poor creature through the left eye. Three people faint. Two men try to fight Frank. Annie again runs on stage, grabs George, and fucking somehow this dog still lives. Once healed, it's never the same, though. It's skittish. Of course it is. It's afraid of everything. Sad sight to behold. Uh, it pains Frank to see his dog this way. He knows he's responsible, and he selfishly decides to put it out of its misery. I think he kind of tried to put his own misery out, and he takes the dog out back behind Annie's dressing room, and he kills it. And, you know, sad, but I guess, I guess it could be worse. We do have to remember in moments like this, when I'm talking about things like this, that George was not a person, you know, not just an animal. People get pretty worked up about dogs getting shot and stuff, but it's really not that big of a deal. December 13th, 1884, the sales circus season concludes in New Orleans at the Industrial and Cotton Exposition. The city was decked out in flags, bunting flowers. Uh, New Orleans was ready to celebrate the 100th year since America had exported its first cotton. Exhibits from every state and territory already crowded the floor in the main exhibition building at the fair. Texas alone had shipped 360 varieties of grasses, 21,000 plants. Philadelphia was talking about lending the Liberty Bell, and Dakota had shipped a carload of wild animals. The fair director, Mr. Dabney, was in a pickle because he had no place to keep the bears and the wolves. It was going to be a big show. Uh, George the Poodle was even going to appear at it. I know, I know, he's dead. But Frank had him stuffed after killing him, put him back in the act. And the trick worked better than ever because now George could finally sit perfectly still. And while I'm guessing most of you know this by now, that I made up all the horrible, horrible uh, recent George the Poodle getting shot multiple times stuff and then sent to a taxidermist. <laughs> for anyone who doesn't already know, for the seven people still listening, uh, George is fine. I, I hope that your anger at me for telling such a disgusting, made-up animal abuse nonsense story is overshadowed by the joy you now feel, knowing that George is fine, okay? So... <laughs> People do care about the George. He's, he's fine. He'll die in 1886 of natural causes, as far as I can tell. 
both Frank and Annie would continue to shoot apples off his fucking head, though, this whole time, which I think is so insane. Back to New Orleans, December 13th, 1884, when everyone is fine, including poor George. Uh, 25,000 visitors stream into the city. They took furnished rooms for 75 cents a day, looked for things to do. The circus played every day, but attendance varied with the weather, rained often and often and hard that December. And if the Sells brothers had hoped to stay in New Orleans, at least until the cotton exposition opened, the persistent rain then changed their minds. They closed the circus after only two weeks, packed their bags for home, leaving Annie and Frank without jobs. Frank started looking for jobs for them almost immediately, taking out an advertisement in the trade publication, The Clipper. Butler and Oakley, premium shots, it said. We'll close a 40-week season with Sells Brothers' enormous shows in New Orleans, Louisiana, shortly, and we'll have a new and novel act for variety theaters, combinations, or skating rinks. I love that they performed at skating rinks. Never before introduced. Address Frank Butler, Sells Brothers Show, New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, also in town is Cody's Wild West Show, and the Butlers uh, ask him for a job. But Buffalo Bill already has a champion shooter named Captain Bogardis, so he turns them down at this point. Let's meet this guy real quick. Captain Adam Bogardus, interesting figure. And he was only nine years old when Captain Bogardus made a name for himself by killing a hundred pigeons in a row without a miss. Awesome for Bogardus, terrible for the pigeons. Uh, that same year, 1869, he also bet a Mr. R.M. Patchen $1,000 that he could kill 500 pigeons in 645 minutes. Uh, the captain did it with 117 minutes to spare. More awesome for Bogardus, uh, more tragic for pigeons. By 1871, Bogardus had defeated the champion shooter in his home state of Illinois and taken the national title. Captain Bogardus was performing in Buffalo Bill's show with his sons, Eugene, Edward, Peter, and Henry, uh, and was also a part owner. Uh, champion shooters were pretty plentiful in the 1870s and 1880s, and Captain Bogardus was, uh, you know, uh, the most famous of a long string of exhibition shooters. His most celebrated and flamboyant rival was a man named Doc Carver. Uh, exhibition shooters, a pretty new phenomenon. They dated to the early 1800s when shooters performed with circuses, but it wasn't until the 1880s that they really achieved, you know, significant popularity. It was a time when the public liked a good show and when guns were a familiar part of American life. You know, part of Annie's fame does lay in the timing, uh, of, you know, her being good at what she was good at. Had she been born 20 or more years sooner, uh, 20 or more years later, odds are wouldn't be talking about her right now. She was very good at something that became very popular at the right time for her. Uh, fancy shooters were becoming so common by the 1880s that even a 12-year-old girl was calling herself the champion rifle shot of the world. Uh, her name was Miss Lillian F. Smith of Watsonville, Santa Cruz County, California. She held a, uh, a $500 wager that she could break 1,000 glass balls in 50 minutes. And with shooters becoming more and more popular, the variety circuit was becoming less and less lucrative for them. The market was flooded. By 1884, so many fancy shooters were on the stage that even Annie's edge as a woman had grown thin. Frank said he knew of at least 20 women and girls in the industry at that time. But few, if any of them, were as good of a shot as Annie. Uh, many of them were more con artists than crack shots. There was a lot of cheating in the trick shot world. Cheaters were so common, in fact, that the London referee declared that at least one half of all fancy shooters accomplished their feats by trick and device. Knocking the ashes off a cigarette hanging off of a smoker's lips, for example, which become one of Annie Oakley's most famous stunts, was an easy trick to perform by cheating. The shooter and his accomplice simply ran a wire through the cigarette. At the report of the gun, the accomplice would touch the wire with their tongue, knocking off the ashes. So insane to me that anyone uh, would be cool letting anyone else uh, shoot the ash off their cigarette for real while they smoked it. Like if George truly understood why the apples on his head were exploding, I'm guessing he would have ran away. <laughs> human beings did understand what was happening. They're like, yeah, what could go wrong? 
And shit could go wrong. Uh, I couldn't find a Wild West example uh, doing a little Googling, but I did find an example from 1963. A 39-year-old trick shot artist named Milo Plouffe was putting on a show in California. His 15-year-old daughter had two balloons tied to her head. He would fire two pistols at the same time to pop them both. And he popped the right balloon with his right pistol. And then the bullet from the pistol in his left hand popped his daughter's brain. He shot her in the head and fucking killed her. Of course, that's going to happen. You do this kind of stuff. Uh, apparently, he was no Annie Oakley or Frank Butler. Back to cheating. Sorry, just so many interesting side roads in today's suck. Uh, even Annie's candle trick, which had impressed Sitting Bull, could be done by cheaters. Instead of placing the candle out in the open, cheaters would put it in, a, in front of a block of wood. And if the bullet hit anywhere within three inches of the candle, the concussion from the bullet bouncing back off the wood was enough to snuff out the candle. Frank told the story of one faker he had seen doing a piano trick in a New York theater. Uh, the man played a tune by hitting discs that hung from each piano key. Halfway through the act, though, his gun jams, and then the piano kept on playing. The man's accomplice in the orchestra apparently failed to see what was happening and just kept on playing. So bad night for that dude when he was laughed out of the theater. Uh, when the job didn't come through with Buffalo Bill, Annie and Frank packed their bags, headed north with George the Poodle, and spent the winter playing a variety of theaters on their own. Uh, March 9th. 1885, after his shooting equipment is lost in a steamship accident, Captain Bogardus quits Cody's show. He and his sons are out. And Oakley promptly re renews her request for a job. I wrote to Colonel Cody right away and asked for an engagement, she later wrote. Uh, Cody responded, but balked at the salary she was asking for. According to Annie, he expressed an opinion that my terms were too steep. And the way she wrote that makes me think Buffalo Bill wrote something back to the effect of, get the fuck out of here. At this time, Bill Cody's show happened to be about $60,000 in debt. And taking on a new high salary was the last thing Buffalo Bill needed. He also worried that Annie uh, couldn't handle the rigors of the job. He thought that a tiny woman might not have the strength to fill Captain Bogardus' big Bogardus shoes. Uh, the captain's uh, shotguns weighed 10 pounds each. Despite all that, uh, an audition is arranged. Buffalo Bill agrees to uh, have a tryout with Annie, an April tryout in Louisville, Kentucky. Annie says that she'd like to try out for three days, and if he wasn't satisfied after that, she would leave with no pay, no questions asked. With Cody's offer in hand, Annie and Frank head to Cincinnati to start training before the tryout. They're taking it seriously. Annie spends most of April at a city gun club, practicing at the trap shooting range. To prove her stamina, uh, as well as to gain some practice with the shotgun, she attempts the greatest endurance feat of her life. She takes three 16-gauge Parker shotguns and tries to break 5,000 glass balls in one day just as Doc Carver and Captain Bogardus had done. She loads her own gun, stands 15 yards from the traps. After nine hours of shooting, she's broken 4,772 balls. Out of the second, she hits 984, which she said was a record for that time, man or woman. While preparing for the audition while doing this, Oakley catches the attention of Cody's business manager, Nate Salisbury, who says some version of, fuck a three-day trial period, you're hired. That season, she goes on to appear before 15 or 150, excuse me, 1,000 people in 40 cities, and Oakley will perform in Cody's Wild West show for almost all the next 17 years. Speaking about her hiring and what Salisbury told Buffalo Bill, she later said, I afterwards heard that he told Colonel Cody that I was a real daisy and completely laid the captain away in the shade. According to Annie, Salisbury ordered $7,000 worth of printing about her, an impressive amount of advertising considering she was an unknown. And the show's advertising rarely named specific performers. He was blown away. She secured a solo spot on the program immediately, billed simply and modestly as Annie Oakley, the peerless wing and rifle shot. In the early years, she appeared midway through the program after the riding of the Pony Express and Buffalo Bill's duel with Yellowhand. 
But in time, she secured the number two spot right behind Buffalo Bill himself. She eased audiences into her act, using a light load of shot at first, gradually increasing it. She didn't just walk into the arena. She tripped in from the grandstand gangway, waving, bowing, or bowing, excuse me, blowing kisses. She wore a skirt that fell just below her knees and a blouse that hung loosely about her waist. This allowed her freedom of movement necessary for a shooter. Her outfits were simple, but they were not plain. She embroidered flowers on her skirts, stitched ribbon trim along the hems, a skill she had learned years ago at that dark county infirmary. The skirts were A-line or pleated, usually blue or light brown. Her white collars were starched, giving her a wholesome, well-pressed look. And she stood out amongst the rough characters of the Wild West show. As her act began, she ran to the center of the arena where she took her place by a plain wooden table, draped with a silken cover and laden with rifles and shotguns. Frank stood by unannounced to load the traps and release the clay birds. They came singly at first, then in pairs, triplets, and finally four at a time, and Annie broke them all, never hesitating, often not missing. In addition to being fast, she was also ambidextrous. For another part of her act, she'd take a pistol in her left hand, one in her right, firing them simultaneously, breaking target after target, two targets at a time. She smashed balls, firing a rifle held upside down over her head while she was lying on her back across a chair. Sometimes she broke balls fastened at the end of a rope or to the end of a rope that Frank would twirl twirl around his head. She was an unbelievably good shot. I watched an old video of her I'll talk about later. And basically, if you've watched videos of like uh, Jimi Hendrix playing the guitar, Annie was like that, but with a gun. It was as if it was just a part of her body, like her skill level just out of this world. It's insane. At 30 paces, she could split a playing card uh, held edge on. She could hit dimes tossed into the air. Like that's, that's, I don't even, I can't even process that. Dimes. Uh, She would shoot cigarettes from her husband's lips, shoot playing cards thrown into the air. She could riddle a playing card with several holes before it touched the ground. She was an elite athlete, truly. In one feet, Annie laid a shotgun in the dirt about 10 feet on the far side of her gun table. She would hurry back around to the other side of the table, wait for Frank to spring a clay bird into the air, As he released it from the trap, she would run forward, hurdle the table in her dress, pick up her shotgun, break the bird before it landed. She only had four or five seconds to do all this from the time that the bird was released before it would hit the ground. She wasn't just fast and accurate with the gun. She was fast on her feet too. No wonder she's such a badass hunter. Uh, And she saved her best trick for last. It required one rifle, five shotguns, and 11 balls. She laid the shotguns on the gun table all neatly in a row. The rifle she took in her hands had been turned upside down. Frank stood ready to throw up some glass balls. As the first one went up, Annie broke it with a charge from her inverted rifle. She would drop the rifle, pick up a shotgun, discharge both barrels, break two more balls in a flash, put the shotgun down, pick up another one, discharge both barrels again, shatter two more balls, exchanging guns five times like that until she had broken nine glass balls. And for the last two balls, she'd kick Frank in the fucking nuts. Boom. Noise. Uh, no. <laughs> well, Frank would drop to the ground and, uh, yeah, no. No, she'd exchange guns five times until she broke an 11 glass balls. Uh, the stunt, uh, the, uh, the, the Toronto Mail and Express was her cleverest number accomplished in the wonderful short time of 10 seconds. She did all that in 10 seconds. 1886, the Wild West show spends the summer performing on Staten Island. New York was the richest city in the U.S. in 1886. Manhattan already had an impressive skyline, electricity, thousands of telephones. The new Brooklyn Bridge spanned the East River. Architects were planning the first skyscraper with a steel skeleton, the 11-story tower building at 50 Broadway. The city's population had already reached one and a half million, and almost 360,000 would attend Annie's shows that summer. 
taking a ferry from Manhattan past the brand new Statue of Liberty, set to be dedicated that fall, then riding a newly constructed rail line four miles to the event grounds. On Saturday, July 24th, nearly 28,000 people showed up, so many that the Wild West couldn't seat them all. Uh, the Wild West Show. And also this summer, a 15-year-old female sharpshooter named Lillian Smith joins Cody's show and quickly becomes Oakley's rival. Smith is billed as the California Huntress and champion girl rifle shot. Smith begins bragging that Annie Oakley's done for now that she's joined the show. 26-year-old Oakley, who did look quite young for her age, responds by lopping six years off her pub uh, publicized age, now telling the press that she was born in 1866 and was just 20 years old. A little, little illustration there of how proud and competitive Annie Oakley was. And also super annoying that she did that because it fucked our timeline. <laughs> it made it really hard to remember like which dates go where because of the, the fact that she tried to change her age later. Uh, Oakley refused to let Lillian outshine her, even if it meant working while she was ill, which is exactly what she did during the big opening day parade that summer in New York. Annie was determined to be in the parade, even though she was running a high fever caused by some random bug that had flown into her right ear, lodged near her eardrum shortly before the Wild West set up camp on Staten Island. Frank had tried unsuccessfully to wash this bug out with some oil, couldn't get it out. She's still going to perform on the morning of the parade. Annie hurries to a doctor who gives her a leech to draw out the bug. She takes it, heads back to camp, finds that everyone was ready to head to Manhattan, Manhattan for the big parade. She lands with the troop at 23rd Street and though feeling weak, joins the parade, goes up to 8th Avenue to 42nd Street over to 5th Avenue. By the time it ended, Annie was too weak to even climb off her horse. Frank and Nate Salisbury rush over, lift her up, carry her back to the boat. Frank now applies the leech the doctor had given her. She just rushed off earlier without even, you know, giving her treatment a go. Blood spurts and her ear bleeds for five hours. That's so gross. The next morning, the doctor comes in and says she has blood poisoning. She's bedridden for four days. On the fifth day, against the doctor's and her husband's wishes, she decides she has to perform. She makes her way into the arena, is so weak she has to lean against her gun table while she shoots. Those four performances she missed would be the only performances she missed in 17 fucking years with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. I like it. She was a tiger. October 7th, 1886, Annie beats a well-known English shooter, William Graham, in competition even though she was wounded. The day before, she and Frank had went out to practice. Annie smashed 25 targets and handed the gun to Frank so he could give a try at the birds. She walks over to the trap, slides in a target for him. As she pulls her hand out, the spiral spring flies out with a zing, striking between the first and second fingers on her left hand and cutting it pretty badly. She hurries to a doctor who closed the wound with stitches, puts her arm in a sling. He forbids her from participating in the match. And then the next day, Annie tries to explain to Graham what has happened. He's understanding. They can't do it. The organizers of the match, however, less understanding and insist that the match continue. Annie says, essentially, fuck it. I'm going to shoot one-handed. Uh, she was to shoot 11 birds. She, uh, and the 10, she manages to shoot easily the first 10. On the 11th, she cuts the tail feathers off clean, but the bird keeps going. Not one to give up. She pulls her hand out of the sling to get a better grasp on the gun for one more shot, and it rips out her stitches. Frank then runs into the arena, announcing the match is over, and Annie leaves amid deafening cheering with her hand covered in dripping blood. Covered in blood and dripping blood. <laughs> She's a tough lady. In the winter of 86-87, Buffalo Bill takes his show indoors, debuting the revamped Wild West show in front of 6,000 people at Madison Square Garden the day before Thanksgiving. Annie Oakley playing the garden. Very cool. March 31st, 1887, Oakley and the rest of Cody's performers depart New York for London on the steamer State of Nebraska. Some 180 horses, 18 buffalo also make the trip. Before Annie heads out, she takes a train to Ohio to say goodbye to her mom and her second stepdad, Joseph Shaw. 
Uh, Frank, worried that American fans will forget about his wife while she's gone, takes out an ad in the New York Clipper, dated April 2nd, 1887. In big, bold letters, it reads, don't forget this. There is only one Annie Oakley, and she leaves for Europe with the Wild West. I love it. March 9th, 1887, the American Expo opens in London with a short prayer by Canon Farrar, a welcome by Lord Ronald Gower, and the singing of the Star-Spangled Banner and Rule Britannia. A band strikes up Dixie, and with that, the crowd makes a mad stampede, not for the main exhibition, but for the covered bridge that led over some railroad tracks to the Wild West camp. Uh, the Daily Telegraph would report, not a soul stayed behind to look at the false teeth or linger over the ironclad brand duster. Does sound pretty boring, that, those things. The Wild West show was all the talk, and Londoners, who soon dubbed it the Yankeries, flocked to its circular grandstands from the first moment it arrived, the crush and fight and struggle amongst both quadrupeds and bipeds to reach the gates of the Yankeries was for some hours something terrific, the evening news reported. On the first day, 10,000 people were smart enough to show up early, take the best seats in the grandstand a full hour before the show was set to begin. All the world and his wife were there, wrote a reporter. It was a fashionable and distinguished throng, indeed the cream of London society. Uh, the famous English stage actor Henry Irving was there. As, were Irish, uh, as was Irish writer Oscar Wilde, uh, Lady Randolph Churchill, wife of a British statesman, mother of Winston Churchill, playwright William Gilbert, composer Arthur Sullivan, many others. According to the Evening News, indeed everyone who is known in London's innermost literary and dramatic circles was there. For the rest of the run, the Wild West show would draw 30 to 40,000 people a day. In the course of its run, the show would attract both Queen Victoria and the Prince of Wales. After Annie's performance one night, Prince uh, Edward called her up to the royal box to congratulate her. As she approached, he extended his hand over the box, expecting a handshake, and Annie, for a moment, ignored it. She turned instead to Princess Alexandra, shook her hand first, and said to Prince Edward, you'll have to excuse me, please, because I'm an American, and in America, ladies come first. <laughs> Such a maverick showing the future king how shit was done in America. Uh, the press has a field day with this, noting Annie's horrendous social faux pas. Annie doesn't care. She said she did it on purpose. She said she intended to snub Prince Edward, who was a known ladies' man and was rumored to have had an affair with the English actress Lily Langtree. Alexander had been married to Edward for 24 years, had long since accepted her husband's infidelity. Annie had not. Annie wrote later in her autobiography that it was worth the bad press to see the pleasantly surprised look on Alexandra's face. Uh, the snub apparently didn't hurt Annie socially. Uh, an American who visited London that summer reported, Miss Oakley is a great favorite here. She is invited out nearly every day to some reception or another. Her tent was full of flowers. And as the newspaper, the referee reported, the loudest applause of the night is reserved for Annie Oakley. Annie felt so welcome in England that for a time that summer, she considered uh, making it her permanent home. She said, I like England immensely and could talk a lot about it, but do, do not want to sicken you with any outburst of fulsome adulation. I know this much, that if I had my mother living with me here, I should be in no hurry to get back to the States. This country is quite good enough for me. But she didn't stay because of mama. After all they went through together as a kid, that makes me super happy to hear. Right? The best shot in the world, who could live anywhere, be loved anywhere, uh, needed to get back to America because she loved her, her mama with all her heart. June 11th, 1887, Annie is roundly applauded as the gun club president, Lord Stormont, hands her a souvenir of her visit, a handsome gold medal. Its face was beautifully engraved with the drawing of Notting Hill uh, and the shooting enclosure there. And on the clasps were, were the words, presented to Miss Annie Oakley by the members of the London Gun Club, June 11th, 1887. Uh, the medal said to be the first ever awarded by the club would always be Annie's favorite. 
It was the one she would wear front and center at publicity photos. It was a valuable medal, larger than a five-shilling piece. More important than that, it uh, told that she had mastered the Blue Rocks and that she had found acceptance among the highest class of London shooters. It was on the back of the London Gun Club medal that Annie would have engraved the words she said were spoken to her by Prince Edward. I know of no one more worthy of it. So I guess Prince Edward hadn't been too mad after all. How great must that have felt to be embraced like that in London for Annie? The girl who grew up in Dark County, Ohio, so poor her mom had to send her for an orphanage or to an orphanage for a few years. A girl who'd been the child slave to the wolves for two years. A girl who was about as country as country got, not able to go to school for long stretches, had to hunt as a teen to keep her mom from losing another farm. Now the toast of London. Beautiful rags to riches tale. July 19th, 1887. Annie's rivalry with Lillian Smith is still on. Lillian and Annie are busy preparing for a rifle competition in Wimbledon, a London suburb. Probably heard of it. Uh, put on by Britain's Rifle Association, Lillian appeared on Tuesday, July 19th, accompanied by a number of cowboys and other celebrities. Miss Smith herself, noted the Weekly Dispatch, presented a striking combination of native eccentricity and feminine sl- uh, slavishness to the dictates of fashion. And these people really fucking wrote a sentence back then. Uh, she wore a white summer dress incongruously accompanied by a yellow silk Mexican sash and plug hat. When they came to the running deer target, Lillian's shooting was a disaster. First two bullets missed the target entirely. Uh, the two shots hit the metal deer's haunch. Embarrassed, Lillian claims that the gun was too heavy and she would return on Thursday with her own gun. However, she did not return. And she didn't pay a, a fine, I guess she was supposed to pay, for hitting that deer haunch. Uh, Lillian was then roasted in the press, in the press, and it was quite a different story when Annie Oakley showed up at Wimbledon the next day. Not a flashy dresser by any means. Annie competes at the same metal running deer event, dressed plainly. The papers report that she did much better then Lillian and Prince Edward pushed through the crowd to congratulate her. Feels like the ladies' man, Prince Edward, wanted to do more than that, more than congratulate her. I'm guessing Annie and her husband, Frank, had lots to say about him in their private moments. Annie's success reflected badly on Lillian Smith, especially because Lillian was considered to be the Wild West rifle expert. Annie was the shotgun ex- expert and now had beaten Lillian at her own game. Halloween, 1887. Oakley quits the Wild West just as it finishes its London run. Why? It sounds like because she found a way to make even more money. During the end of the run and afterwards, she was giving shooting lessons and was being paid for exhibitions at local gun clubs. Though compensation was never mentioned beforehand, Annie said the clubs always slipped her 50 pounds, 250 bucks at the time. And one week she made 750 bucks, equivalent to over 20,000 bucks today. Solid week's wage. Uh, the butler's party with Buffalo Bill happened quietly, mentioned only in a short note in the evening news on October 31st, 1887. By the way, the note read, the show will lose one of its principal attractions in the purpose in the person of Miss Annie Oakley, who severs her connection with the Wild West voluntarily. Her loss to the Wild West show will be a serious one. Around the same time, a novel was published called The Rifle Queen. Uh, with its 64 pages, it was the truthful and stirring story, quote unquote, of Annie Oakley, published by the General Publishing Company, 280 The Strand, London. Uh, not sure if she got paid for this extremely distorted unofficial biography or not. Uh, the two-penny book told how Annie grew up in Kansas. Uh, she didn't. She had many adventures there. Uh, there she killed the unscrupulous scoundrel, Darky Mural. Doesn't exist. Uh, she also put a bullet through the eye of a panther. Uh, shot a wolf. Uh, she tried to skin that wolf, but then it was still alive. And his jaw cla- uh, uh, clamped on her arm. Uh, chapters of the Rifle Queen were full of Annie's adventures and where she uh, met up with uh, some dude named Mac, a desperado. She bagged a bear. Uh, she survived a blizzard. Uh, she saved an entire train from robbers. 
<laughs> Apparently there was not literally an ounce of truth in the Rifle Queen. Like this dude didn't interview her at all. He just fucking made up whatever sounded right about Annie Oakley. Uh, and also apparently she wasn't angry about it because it pushed her legend to even greater heights. Sounds kind of cool. I want, I want someone to, uh, to publish one of these type of biographies about me where they're not bound by the truth. L like what if today's time suck was brought to you by this sponsor. Order your advanced copy of the suck master today. The all true story of podcaster, comedian, international powerlifting champion, great white shark trainer, fitness model, explosives expert, undefeated heavyweight UFC champion, monster truck stunt driver, Hall of Fame 10-time Super Bowl winning quarterback, brain surgeon, time machine inventor, cult leader, one world government president for life, the man unanimously voted best husband, most sexually desirable male, greatest father by literally everyone on earth, including himself. Sure, now you know Dan Cummins is the most successful human who ever lived. But do you know where he came from? How did he transform from a poor rural Idaho kid with a giant head, small mouth, trouble speaking, weirdly skinny body, into an apex predator with the world's biggest, hardest penis? It wasn't easy. You had to pay a lot of dues to make it to the top. For many years to raise enough money to free himself from his backwoods surroundings. Dan recorded video of himself giving blowjobs to farm animals, and he sold those videos behind a local grocery store dumpster. Then used that money to buy and sell illegal assault rifles to kindergartners, while also working as an underground fight promoter, arranging death matches between orphans and wild bears he would feed nothing but cocaine. Before starting off in comedy, he moved to the Ukraine and worked as a human sex trafficker kidnapping disabled widows and selling them to snuff film producers. You know what? Uh, on second thought, uh, I would rather not have a fake biography. I, I really like the first part of my fake bio. I hated the origin story section. If I want to have a fake biography, I'm going to definitely need to hire a better fake author than whoever that fake asshole was. So please disregard all of that. Uh, let's get back to Annie's story, the real one. April 2nd, 1888. Oakley returns to the stage debuting at a variety show in Philadelphia. Did America remember her? They sure as shit did. She plays the sold-out shows. Annie performs with Tony Pastor's company at the Criterion in Brooklyn, the Howard Antheonym in Boston, and Jacob and Proctor's in Hartford. Before the year ended, she'd set an American record at doubles by scoring 25 pairs in a row. On another day, she defeated New Jersey state shooting champion Miles Johnson, who reportedly had never been beaten on New Jersey soil. Between 15 and 31,000 people watched the match. Holy shit. So many that traps had to be moved farther out three times because the crowd kept overflowing from the grandstand. Annie missed only her 47th bird with the miss. She turned to Johnson and said, did you bring that bird from England? He replied, no, I trained that fellow in order to get in one miss on you. Annie didn't win every match, almost, but not quite. Uh, even Michael Jordan in his prime didn't make all his buzzer beater shots. Annie lost at least two during 1888, one to her old friend Al Bandel of Cincinnati, 10 to 9, and one to her new friend, Phil Daly Jr. of Long Branch, New Jersey, 43 to 42. My God, each loss, she only loses by one shot. Clearly just never phoned it in. Uh, even in defeat, Annie won admirers. A reporter from the Philadelphia Commercial Gazette who watched Annie lose to Al Bandel said her exhibition was wonderful, and the applause she received even in defeat was something to make her proud. Uh, in the summer of 1888, Annie leaves Tony Pastor's company, joins up with Buffalo Bill's rival company, the Comanche Bill, Wild West show uh, for $300 a week. Uh, the Comanche Bill Wild West show soon buys the floundering Pawnee 
Bill show. How, how is there so many Bills back then? Couldn't anyone name their kid Bob or Hank or Jethro? Have them open a fucking Wild West show? This is insane. This is a preposterous amount of Bills. <laughs> On December 24th, 1888, Christmas Eve, 28-year-old Annie does not take the night off, acts in a play called Deadwood Dick or the Sunbeam of the Sierras. Annie plays Sunbeam a white girl who grew up among the Indians after she survived an attack on her family's covered wagon. She learned to shoot a gun and showed the audience what she could do by smashing glass balls with unerring aim and then running off stage, leaving a house full of smoke and an astonished audience behind. Pretty good description. Uh, audiences loved it. Newspapers, more critical. Uh, the Philadelphia Press reported on December 25th, the plot is unreasonable and the dialogue is remarkable for its bombastic crudity or crudity. I don't think anybody ever used that word anymore. So it's profane. Oh, well, uh, critics don't pay performers' bills. The audience does. Uh, February 1889, after Annie's rival, Lillian Smith leaves Cody's Wild West show. The stage is set for Oakley to return. A newspaper announces she'll be rejoining the show. Now that this other lady's out of there, uh, in time for its trip to Paris to participate in the Universal Expo there. Now she's going to France. Uh, the Paris Exposition, which commemorates the 100th anniversary of the French Evolution, opened, Revolution, opens in April, features the newly built Eiffel Tower and a Wild West show fronted by Annie. So many visitors were in Paris that the city's population swelled by 200,000 a day. All told, 32 million people would pay admission to the fair, including 90,000 Americans. Annie's performance attracts two remarkable offers. <laughs> this killed me. The president of France, well, the second one does. First one's really cool. The president of France says she can have a commission in the French army, saying, when you feel like changing your nationality and profession, there is a commission awaiting you in the French army. People love her. They're like, we're ready to take her in England, now ready in France to put her in the army. As we learned in the Joan of Arc suck, there was historical precedent in France for badass warrioresses. And then, this is the one that killed me, the king of Senegal <laughs> uh, approaches Buffalo Bill, wants to buy Annie for 100,000 francs. So he can use her to kill tigers that are plaguing his country. Clearly, uh, things worked a little different in Senegal at that time. Uh, this dude, Caesar, is like, I, I would like to buy the woman. How much? Uh, sir, this is a theatrical performance, uh, not a slave auction. Please return to your seat and shut the fuck up. Uh, Annie declines both offers. But upon meeting famed inventor Thomas Edison, she has a request of her own. She wants to know if he can design an electric gun. Uh, Edison, Edison says he will consider it. Uh, when the Wild West show ends up in six months, when the Wild West show ends, it's six months. I cannot talk today. Paris engagement in the fall of 1889. Too much info to get out in too little time. Uh, Cody and his company began on a three-year tour of Europe. This three-year tour only cements Oakley as America's first international female star. She earns more than any other performer in the show, except for Buffalo Bill himself. Also performed in many shows on the side for even more income. In Europe, she performs for Queen Victoria, uh, King Umberto of Italy, President Marie-Francois Sadi Carnot of France, other crowned heads of state. Uh, Oakley even supposedly shoots the ashes off a cigarette held in the mouth of newly crowned German Kaiser Wilhelm II at his request. Crazy. December 29th, 1890, Annie and Frank are spending Christmas at the Royal Oak Hotel in Ashford, Kent. When Annie picks up a newspaper, uh, reads some pretty startling news, uh, reads that she's died. The article says that she has died of congestion of the lungs in Buenos Aires. The report, apparently first published in a French newspaper uh, on December, yeah, that same day, was picked up by many other newspapers, Annie's obituary appearing all over Europe and America. Poor Annie Oakley dies in a far-off land. The greatest of female shots, reported the Cincinnati commercial on January 2nd, 1891. <laughs> Annie's mother cries for two days when she reads the news in the, in the North Star paper. 
Even Buffalo Bill, who had returned to the U.S. for the winter, didn't know what to think. He sent three cables to Frank, anxiously awaited for an answer. The response came back shortly, and he just finished a full Christmas platter. No truth in report. And Cody wrote back, I am so glad our Annie ain't dead. Ain't you? <laughs> Very much alive, Annie rejoins the Wild West for a second tour of Europe in April of 19, 1891. The show opened in Germany, then uh, made stands in Belgium and Holland, then crossed the North Sea and into England for a long tour of the British Isles. The show played Liverpool, Manchester, Sheffield, Bristol, Leicester, Birmingham, Brighton, Portsmouth, before crossing the border into Wales, uh, then Scotland, where it set up for the winter in the East End Exhibition Building on Duke Street in Glasgow, October 27th, 1892. 32-year-old Annie returns to America a superstar, with newspapers clamoring for interviews and the public hanging on her every word. She makes 150 bucks a week at the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. Not as much as she'd made in Europe at different points, but still a fortune in a day when the average worker in the U.S. made 483 bucks a year. May 1st, 1893, the Chicago Columbia Exposition opens, commemorating the 400th anniversary of Columbus landing in the Americas. Uh, been a while since we visited that expo. We have visited it before uh, on a much darker episode. Remember which one, longtime suckers? 19th century serial killer H.H. Holmes. Uh, he was running his infamous murder castle scheme during the expo, making some tourists disappear forever in that uh, terrifying house. Luckily, he was not interested in married women or high-profile types like Annie Oakley. Also, there's likely she would have shot him dead if he would have tried to do anything. Uh, although the Wild West show, not part of the official White City Exposition, uh, it actually opened five days before on April 26th. It, it does uh, attract some of the biggest crowds of the expo or, or in the city that year. Uh, record crowds in the venue across the street. This year will be Cody's best with the show playing before 6 million people, making a profit of $1 million, equivalent to almost $30 million today. On Sunday, October 8th, for example, the Wild West took in $19,000 in just two performances. In December 1893, the Butlers move into a new home in Nutley, New Jersey, 304 Grant Avenue, more than 1,000 miles from the Wild West, uh, where she never lived but came to symbolize. Uh, it was a roomy house said to have cost as much as $9,000, Three stories, porch across the front, railed balcony, and a turret at the side. They're crushing it. May 1894, the Wild West show sets up shop for the summer in Brooklyn. For the first time, the show can be performed at night, thanks to an enormous array of new electric lights. Oakley's, uh, Oakley travels to electric light inventor Thomas Edison's studio in West Orange, New Jersey, this summer, to give a shooting demonstration in front of another one of his contraptions called a kinetoscope. Edison wants to see if the kinetoscope forerunner of today's motion picture cameras can capture the smoke from Oakley's shots, which it does. Talk about this in a second. Uh, October 6th, 1894, the Wild West show closes for the season of financial disappointment for Cody that he blames in part on the country's new economic depression and the cost of running the all uh, or running all the electric lights. Uh, Oakley and Butler perform in Edison's kinetoscope film on November 1st, uh, the little sure shot of the Wild West. An exhibition of rifle shooting at Glass Balls, which was filmed at Edison's Black Maria Studio by William Heiss. And you can find this video on YouTube or on Annie's Wikipedia page. It is awesome to be able to actually see her shoot. Her aim is so steady, it is unreal. She's like a robot. She's so fast. Uh, the video is only 20 seconds long, and I, I highly recommend you check it out if you like this story. Uh, 1895, in an effort to restore its past profitability, Cody takes his Wild West show back on the road, visiting 131 towns. Oakley continues to tour and will tour for the next several years, crisscrossing the country by train while firing, in her estimation, more than 40,000 shots a year. Oakley's act is celebrated through the country, but life on the road is beginning to exhaust her. 
Uh, July 4th, 1896, Independence Day, the Wild West show plays in Piqua, Ohio. Uh, for Annie, this day brings a most special visitor, her mom. Piqua was only about 30 miles from North Star. Susan Shaw rides over with Annie's brother, her sisters, and a number of nephews and nieces. It was the first time they'd ever seen Annie perform. Two of Annie's oldest friends, Nancy Ann and Crawford Eddington, uh, a couple that had helped her when she was just a little girl, showed up at the Wild West lot a few days later in Bluffton, Indiana. Everyone is so happy to see how well things are going for Annie. Doing what she loves, making an amazing living, a superstar, traveling the world, and still in love with Frank as ever. Frank called Annie Missy. She called him Jimmy, a name that, according to Annie's niece, Fern Campbell uh, Wout, was coined one day when Annie was sick. Annie, uh, Frank came into her room and began to do funny stunts to make her laugh. Now, Jimmy, the squirrel does tricks, Annie had said. Fucking no idea why. Just whatever little cute nickname. And from that day on, she called him Jimmy. Frank would keep uh, scrapbooks of their letters, including poems and stories he would write for her, including this one that happened after that little nickname was coined. Jim was a squirrel that lived in a park. He washed his face with his tail and went for a lark. He met a Miss Chipmunk, another kind of squirrel, says Jim. She will do for my very best girl. So he cocked his left ear and winked his right eye. Miss Chipmunk looked bashful but made no reply. But Jim was a squirrel that never would tarry. So he made his best bow and asked her to marry. Miss Chipmunk smiled sweetly, saying, Between me and you, this is very sudden, but I don't care if I do. Then they were happy as squirrels could be and lived in a hole in the big elm tree. They jumped and they played every day in their life. For, the sh- for she loved her Jim, and Jim loved his wife. Pretty pretty sweet, that Frank Butler. And I hope Lindsay does not listen to this episode, because I don't want a, a, a new poetry expectation put upon me. <laughs> At the end of the 19th century, Oakley promoted the service of women in combat operations for the U.S., uh, for their armed forces. She wrote a letter to President McKinley on April 5th, 1898, said, But in case of such an event, I am ready to place a company of 50 lady sharpshooters at your disposal. Every one of them will be an American— and as they will furnish their own arms and ammunition, will be little, if any, expense to the government. She wants to fight for a country. Uh, the Spanish-American War does occur, but Oakley's offer is not accepted. Teddy motherfucking Roosevelt uh, did, however, name his volunteer cavalry the Rough Riders after the Buffalo Bills Wild West and Congress of Rough Riders of the world, where Oakley was a major star. Uh, to show you how truly famous she was around this time, check this out. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, Ushers traditionally punched a hole or two in free tickets to the circus, theater, or sporting events in order to differentiate them from those of paying customers when tabulating receipts. Uh, The pockmarked tickets resembled the playing cards that Oakley would shoot holes through during her performances, which led to free admissions being referred to as Annie Oakley's. According to the Dixon Baseball Dictionary, the term also became part of baseball lingo to refer to a walk because it was a free pass to first base. And Annie Oakley. Uh, July 25th, 1900, Annie performs in her hometown of Greenville, Ohio. Kind of her hometown. You get it. We went over her bio. It it, it was considered to be her hometown. Kind of like Grangeville, Idaho. Sometimes it's listed as my hometown, even though I'm not in the fucking ballpark of her notoriety, but uh, because I was born, even though I never lived there. Uh, For the first time as part of the Wild West show, they they travel to Greenville. Given a commemorative silver cup by the townspeople, Annie says she prizes it more highly than anything ever presented to me. Uh, In 1901, the same year as McKinley's assassination, Annie is badly injured in a train accident, but recovers after suffering from temporary paralysis and going through five spinal operations. Five spinal operations in 1901. That sounds absolutely horrific. Uh, She leaves the Buffalo Bill show and in 1902 begins a less taxing acting career in a stage play written especially for her, The Western Girl. 
He plays the role of Nancy Barry, who uses a pistol, rifle, and rope to outsmart a group of outlaws. So I guess those back surgeries clearly worked. Uh, in 1904, Annie gets slandered in the press for the first time, big time. Yes, there was that lie about her dying, but this is very different. Sensational cocaine prohibition stories were selling well. And newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst. We met him in the strange kidnapping of Patty Hersuck. He publishes a false story that Oakley had been arrested for stealing to support a cocaine habit. The woman actually arrested was a burlesque performer who told Chicago police that her name was Annie Oakley, something she made up on the spot. Uh, so then uh, Hearst writes that Annie Oakley was now in prison for stealing in order to get money for, with which to buy cocaine. Newspapers all around the country print this story. Most of them then immediately retract it with apologies when they learn of the libelous error. Hearst uh, tries to avoid paying anticipated court judgments of $20,000, equivalent to $570,000 in two, uh, today's money, by sending an investigator to Dark County, Iowa, Ohio, I, was, I keep wanting to call it Iowa, uh, with the intent of collecting reputation-smearing gossip from Oakley's past. Uh, the investigator does not find anything. Oakley then spends much of the next six years winning all but one of her 55 different libel lawsuits against various papers. She will collect awards ranging from $900 to $27,500. Uh, doesn't make any money, ends up losing money when all of her legal and other expenses are factored in. For her, it wasn't about the money. It was about the principal. And fuck William Randolph Hearst, but he could have just paid a big settlement. He had so much money. He could have paid a big settlement for his big mistake, but he chose not to. See, everything I read about that guy, uh, especially in his later years, seems like a fucking dirtbag. Successful, but dirtbag. August 18th, 1908, Annie, uh, who has been appearing in various shooting events, learns that her mother has died, returns to Ohio. Susan experienced a lot of tragedy in her adult life, as we know, but Annie did make sure that for the majority of her life, her mom lived in comfort. And she lived to the age of 76 and is now buried in Mendenhall Cemetery in Dark County. May 1910, Oakley pays a visit to Cody's Wild West uh, who, that are then performing again at Madison Square Garden. Buffalo Bill asks her to return, but she declines. She does, in 1911, join a rival show called Young Buffalo uh, Wild West and performs with it for the next two years. Although now we're 50, after five spinal surgeries, still keeps up with the show's grueling pace, traveling more than 8,000 miles in one 27-week span. 1912, the Butlers build a brick bungalow-style home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It is known as the Annie Oakley House and is listed on the National Historic Register of Historic Places. The National Register of Historic Places. Uh, Cody's show in 1913 goes bankrupt. Uh, that same year, uh, October 4th, Annie Oakley's career in Wild West shows also comes to an end. She retires after a performance in Marion, Illinois. The heyday of America's Wild West shows is officially over. Summer of 1915, the Butlers embark on an automobile road trip to visit Buffalo Bill, who is now in failing health. Butlers decide to winter in Pinehurst, North Carolina, where Oakley gives lessons to women who want to learn shooting. Many, many women, as we mentioned in the uh, open of the show. Less than two years later, January 1st, 1917, Buffalo Bill Cody dies in Denver, Colorado. Neither of the Butlers attend the funeral. Bit harder to zip across the country back then. Oakley does compose a eulogy for her old friend that runs in several newspapers. In it, she calls Cody the kindest, simplest, most loyal man I ever knew. The personification of those sturdy and lovable qualities that really made the West. Annie continues to set shooting accuracy records into her 60s now. Also engages in extensive philanthropy for women's rights and other causes. Uh, she embarked on a sure shot comeback and intended to star in a feature-length silent movie. She hits 100 clay targets in a row from 16 yards at the age of 62 in a 1922 shooting contest in Pinehurst, North Carolina. Uh, later in 1917, in April, the U.S. enters World War I and Oakley telegraphs the Secretary of War. 
offering to raise a regiment of women to join the fight. He's offering again to help the government in war. Uh, the government does not reply. Oakley ends up giving shooting demonstrations to raise money, though, at various army camps around the country. God love her. What a fucking badass. Right? She's ready to go overseas, still fight for a country with a regiment of other sharpshooters. When they tell her no, she doesn't just go sit and sulk in the corner. She raises money for the war effort. November 19th, 1922. A car accident in Florida fractures Oakley's hip and right ankle. For the rest of her life, she will walk with a leg brace. Leg brace. Florida. Apparently, they've always had bad drivers. <laughs> if you live in Florida, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Annie eventually performed again after more than a year of recovery and set more shooting records in 1924 because, of course, she did. She could have lost both legs and both arms in that car accident somehow still kept shooting. Uh, December of 1924, the Butlers moved to Dayton, Ohio. And then in uh, failing health in the summer of 1926, Oakley moves back to Dark County, place of her birth. Uh, Annie Oakley dies of pernicious anemia in Greenville, Ohio, at the age of 66 on November 3rd, 1926. Today, some B12 vitamins or just a change in diet could have cured this easily. It's a condition where your body just can't make enough healthy red blood cells because it lacks vitamin B12. Damn you, old-timey doctors. And he was cremated and her ashes buried at Brock Cemetery near Greenville. And now, get your allergy eye pills ready. Uh, maybe grab some allergy tissues. 79-year-old Frank, so grieved by Annie's death, the death of the love of his life, a woman he'd been smitten with since that Thanksgiving Day, 1875, over 50 years earlier, when he, you know, met, met her back in Ohio for the first time, he stops eating. 18 days later, he dies of starvation, dies of a broken heart, just had zero interest in living in a world without Annie Oakley. First couple times I went over that, uh, I had a crazy allergic reaction. Uh, thinking about how powerful their love was uh, really kind of uh, irritated my eyeballs. Frank was buried next to her ashes. Both her... Uh, uh, both body and ashes were interred in the cemetery on Thanksgiving Day, November 25th, 1926. After her death, her incomplete autobiography was given to stage comedian Fred Stone, and it was discovered that her entire fortune had been spent on her family and her charities. She was, she was the fucking best. 20 years later, uh, May 16th, 1946, Roger and Hammerstein's musical Annie Get Your Guns opens on Broadway in New York City. The show will later be made into a film and then a TV series called Annie Oakley will, uh, and that will run from 1954 to 1957. And that will take us out of this inspiring time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Annie Oakley was fierce, a force of nature, a testament to the power of the human will. Uh, when there is a will, there is often truly a way, and Annie had so much will in her. Petite, five foot nothing, and as powerful as all get out. Annie did most of what she did living in a time when women were still 40 years away from gaining the right to vote, when women were expected to make a proper home for their husbands and children, let their husbands call the shots. Annie wouldn't do any of that shit. She called the shots. She shot the shots. Too much lucifine in her, too much fire. Born Phoebe Ann Mosey in 1860 to a very struggling family in rural Dark County, Ohio. Annie first used her gun to survive, then used it to save her family farm, and then eventually used it to pay off the mortgage on her mother's farm before entering in local shooting competitions. At one such competition, uh, this uh, young Annie would meet the love of her life, Frank Butler, who would be with Annie until their deaths in 1926. Uh, during her lifetime, Annie would see the world change so much. The American Civil War raged on around her when she was a little kid. 
She was a major part of the end of the Wild West. She saw the Spanish-American War, offered to form a command of female sharpshooters, did that for World War I as well, saw the invention of the moving picture, was in a moving picture, traveled the world in a way no woman had really ever done before as an international star, meeting, entertaining foreign dignitaries and leaders. In a time when people were fascinated by the bloody battles for survival on the American frontier, Annie used her record-breaking, unparalleled skills to impress audiences, to build the American legend of the Wild West, build her own legend, used her talents to teach women how to defend themselves, to empower them. Even after her death, her fortune would go to her family and various charities, and the charities would continue to uh, help women. I think I can really begin to see why Frank loved her as much as he did. How can you not love Annie Oakley? What is there not to love about her and her incredible, inspiring story? Let's look at her life a few more times in today's Top 5 Takeaways. Time suck. Top 5 Takeaways. Number one, Annie Oakley started using a gun at around the age of eight. Long before she competed, she was using it to support her family, even though her mother banned her from touching her father's gun at one point. And then her mother rethought that policy when Annie used her shooting skills to pay her mortgage off. Number two, at one point, Annie was arguably the most well-known living woman in America, really in the world. She delighted thousands of crowds, millions of people, broke lots of marksmanship records, uh, was even the adopted child of Sitting Bull. Number three, though she would come to symbolize the American frontier in the West, Annie was from Ohio. Legend of the Wild West would thrive primarily in Wild West shows that traveled the country in Annie's time, shows which were the forerunners of TV's Westerns, Westerns like Val Kemmer's Tombstone. Thank you, Annie, for my favorite movie of all time. Number four, Frank Butler and Annie met when she was just a teen, and they would soon become inseparable and remain together for the rest of their lives. Brought together in a competition in which she beat him, Frank would never publicly be insecure or jealous of his wife's successes. He took on the role of her manager, made sure that her reputation and career was always on the right track, and he would die just 18 days after she did of essentially a broken heart. And number five, new info. Let's meet another female sharpshooter our exploration of Annie led us to that I otherwise would not have known about, Yumila Pavlashenko. Yumila Pavlashenko. Uh, Yumila would become one of the most famous and deadly shooters of all time, often referred to as the world's deadliest female sniper. Her nickname is Lady Death. Uh, Yumila was born in 1916 in what is now Ukraine, but was then the Russian Empire. When she was 14, her family moved to Kiev, where Yumila joined a paramilitary shooting club, enrolled in civilian sniper classes, and worked at Kiev Arsenal Factory. At 21, Yumila competed, uh, completed a master's degree in history at Kiev University in, in 1937 and was in her fourth year of another history degree in June of 1941 when Germany invaded the Soviet Union. She was among the first group of volunteers recruited. She was offered a nursing position because she was a woman. She balked at that offer, instead requested to be uh, in the infantry, was given an infantry assignment, placed in the Red Army's 25th Rifle Division after demonstrating some Annie Oakley-esque shooting skills. Yumila served for two and a half months near Odessa, during which time she had 187 confirmed kills, promoted to senior sergeant. Nazi soldiers in the area knew of Lady Death, feared her. Her fellow Soviet soldiers began to see her as a leader and inspiration despite a general lack of tolerance for women in their service at that time. In October of 1941, her unit was relocated to Sevastopol, uh, in, or Sevastopol, in Sevastopol, Yumila was promoted to lieutenant and achieved the rest of her total 309 confirmed kills, including three, uh, 36 enemy snipers. Wow. Uh, Yumila became so well-known that she was pulled from combat in 1942 and was sent to tour the U.S., Canada, and England to promote the war effort there. 
In the U.S., Yumila became the first Soviet citizen to be received by U.S. president or by a U.S. president after Frank D. Roosevelt welcomed her to the White House. The First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt invited Yumila to tour the country and speak to Americans about her combat experiences to help raise support for the war. At first, the American press seemed more occupied with what Yumila wore than her achievements on the field of battle. Journalists fired questions at her about whether women could wear makeup on the front line or asked her uh, why she wore a uniform that made her look fat. Jesus Christ. Uh, the papers dubbed her the girl sniper, belittling her achievements. Yumila's gracious handling of their questions eventually uh, turned to understandable frustration and she once responded to a journalist, I wish you could experience a bombing raid. You would immediately forget about your choice of outfit. Yeah, fuck yeah. Tell her or tell him. <laughs> uh, after the war, she finished her education at Kiev University and became a historian. And I think Annie Oakley would have loved her. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Annie Oakley has been sucked. A lot of yip, yip, yah. A lot of mush mouth. <laughs> which I do apologize for. And what's crazy, I've, it's like when you feel too confident. I felt so confident about at least pronunciations going into this episode. I was like, yeah, it's fucking it's American story. I can speak English and this is going to be fine. And I put all my, you know, little uh, phonetic spellings into the, into the notes and this is going to be great. And then my mouth was like, fuck you. Why? Why? Because you made that joke about George the Poodle. That's why. Uh, I, I hope you liked her tale as much as I did though. Truly. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck each and every week. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Scriptkeeper Zach Flannery, Sophie Fact Source for Sevens, Bit Elixir, Logan the Art Warlock, running badmagicmerch.com and the socials. Uh, Liz Hernandez also helping now with the socials. Thanks to all of those who have joined the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group. Over 23,000 members of a true online community. Uh, now with splinter groups constantly breaking off in all kinds of different ways. All kinds of friendships being made, fun being had, and apparently uh, romantic hookups uh, are happening. I love it. Lucifina loves it. Captain Whiskerhorn loves it. Uh, Sarsaparilla Spunkmeister loves it. Uh, thanks to Liz Hernandez again and her all-seeing eyes running the Cult of the Curious Facebook page. Megan Howell, Ellie Darling, Danny Ryan, Robbie Erickson, Jacob Carey, uh, Kaylee Fitzpatrick, Jeffrey Bistrin, Adam Gustafson, Gustafson, Gustafson. There we go. Kathleen Soller and Shelley Annenson. I think I got your name right this time, Shelly. Uh, thanks to all the wonderful weirdos having fun over on Discord as well. Beefsteak and the mod squad of Jesse, Becky, and Cody. Uh, thank you for having easy names and keeping shit weird and fun. Uh, thanks to all of you space scissors playing the Time Suck Trivia game on the app. Bodie210 currently in round five's lead with 4,540 points. Uh, new round starts on Monday, December 7th at 3 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, next week on The Suck, a significantly less inspiring tale, but very interesting. The Truck Stop Killer. Uh, Robert, I hope you're not inspired by this tale. God, I hope you're not. Uh, Robert Ben Rhodes, born in 1945, seemed to most like an unassuming trucker. The Iowa native had an idyllic childhood that ended abruptly when his dad was arrested for a, a very alarming crime. And after that thing spiraled out of control, he became a sexual sadist, became deeply interested in BDSM, and that interest soon led to rape fantasies that led to an interest in just straight up rapes and murder. Rhodes was a deeply fucked up individual whose identity orbited around mostly causing pain. On the CB radio, on the road, he called himself Whips and Chains. Estimated by many that he killed over 50 people during his active period from 75 to 1990, most of them young women and the occasional men who they were traveling with, whom Rhodes quickly disposed of before he got to his true sick purpose, rape and torture. He kept his victims alive sometimes for weeks in the back of his truck, which was rigged up like a mobile torture dungeon reminiscent of the toy box killer setup 
with nipple clamps, belts, chains, handcuffs, and much more. Then the young women's bodies will be dumped, their heads and pubic hair shaved, just like, it's all out of like a horror movie. Yikes! Another dirty, dirty dirt bag explored next week. Uh, now let's explore the cult of the curious in this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Our first update is an amazing example of Cummins Law, an awesome law enforcement sucker who remains anonymous, uh, very understandably sending this message that I love so much. Uh, they write, Dear Sir Mother Sucker, I have emailed you a few times, mainly with just the words, Handy Randy because I still laugh at that shit at least once a week. Anyway, I work in law enforcement, and while on duty, I had contact with a guy, and long story short, I had to arrest him. The guy was very cooperative, and while I was putting him in the cage of my patrol car, my phone in my pocket connected to the Bluetooth. I had been listening to the John Hay acid bath killer suck <laughs> before I got out of my car. <laughs> when the phone connected, it automatically started at the part where you were going ham about Lucifina's body and all her pleasurable nerve centers. <laughs> I hurried up and got the guy in my car, ran around to get in on my side, thinking the whole time, fuck you, Dan, you're fucking Cummins Law. After turning the volume down, waiting for the guy to ask me what the hell I'm listening to, I hear him from my cage say, hey, man, I'm cool with listening to Time Sucker if you are. I said, you're a lizard? He says, yeah, I've been exposed. So we listened to Time Suck together on the way to jail. I couldn't help but laugh afterwards. Keep on sucking that long, hard, majestic, sometimes hairy, but always enjoyable time. I love it. Two space lizards, one an officer of the law, one a dude who just got arrested, and join suck together on the way to jail. That cracked me up so much. And, and thank you, Officer Handy Randy, for what you do. I hope, uh, hope 2021 is a lot easier for you and others in your profession than it seems to have been in 2020. Uh, now a touching message from a grieving but very grateful super sucker, Robert Hansen. Uh, Robert writes, Dear Captain Whiskerhorn, I have a tale for you. Back in December of 2015, in the age before all this COVID bullshittery, my mother was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer and was near inoperable. Fortunately, a miracle happened, and due to the amazing surgeons at UCSF, she was able to have the tumor removed completely and survive the ordeal. The doctors warned us that the cancer would return, but if I'm being honest, we were a bit too happy about her survival to focus on that. Then a year passed with no cancer, then another, then a few more. In truth, we all kind of hoped it was gone for good. Then just before COVID hit, the tumor came back much larger, far more aggressive. Surgery was an option, but not a good one. So I turned to the cult of the curious for some help. Thanks to the cult in a local church, we were able to get medical equipment to help my mother in the home. So when COVID hit, my mother did not have to go spend all her time in hospitals alone and in danger of infection. Unfortunately, this did not last and surgery was needed. And wouldn't you know it, that steel-hardened woman made it through a second heavily invasive brain surgery and came home. Then things got worse and very quickly, she developed a swelling on her brain from the surgery that would not yield. Within a month, she could not walk. A week after that, she could no longer speak or hold down her food. I had to spend eight days watching her lay in bed, refusing to eat or drink any water. On October 27th, she passed away in her bed, surrounded by her children and family and friends. I'm sorry to share such a heart-wrenching story, but I haven't been handling my grief well and I needed to share. But that's not the point of this email. The point is to thank you, the people working in the studio, most of all, the cult of the curious. You gave my mother another year of life. You allowed her to meet my now fiance, to see us get engaged, to reconcile a relationship with her daughter, and to allow her to pass how she wanted, at home with her family, not in a hospital, but alone. I cannot thank all of you enough for that gift. Thank you for reading this, and an even bigger one if you read it on the show. Keep on sucking, Robert. Uh, damn, Robert, I am so sorry for your loss. I cannot imagine. 
Also, so very grateful that the community that sprang up around this podcast, a community that has a life of its own very much now, uh, so crazy, uh, that this community was able to help ease your uh, loss, ease your mother's pain. I hope it continues to be a source of comfort and strength for you and many others. Uh, Hail Nimrod. I hope your mother's spirit is smiling down upon you from whatever world lies beyond this one. Uh, Crazy Zodiac Killer update. Now coming in from Top Shelf Sack, Nick Hansen, who writes, Dear Master Sucker, Longtime listener, first time emailer. I wanted to write in and share an unconfirmed run in with the Zodiac Killer that my father in law recently shared with me. My father in law grew up in the Bay Area. He was either late high school or very early college when the Zodiac, when the Zodiac killings began. He had a Volkswagen camper van, decided to take his girlfriend out for a drive to try out the bed in the back of the van. So, where does he go? To the area where the Zodiac Killer has been active. He takes the van, turns off the street to a dirt road. Oh boy, drives a while where they think they can get some privacy, locks the doors, draws the shades around the inside of the whole van so nobody can see inside. He does not share the immediate details with me of what happens next, thankfully. But eventually they hear another car drive up and someone gets out and starts walking around their van. This person even tries to open the doors. They hear the footsteps trail off. My father-in-law grabs his rifle that he had in the van, tries to peek out the blinds to see what he's dealing with. He's able to look out the front window, sees a masked hooded figure around 50 feet away in front of the van and this figure's pointing a gun at the van. The man points the gun away from the van to his side and fires it, then points it back, back to his side and fires it again. At this point, my father-in-law is trying to figure out a plan on how he's going to roll out of the van and have a shootout with this guy. Luckily, the masked man walks further away from them, gets out of sight, so he just gets in the driver's sight and hauls ass out of there. As they're getting back to the street, he was able to get a good look at the car. He said it matched the description of the car used by the Zodiac Killer. After this crazy story, I had to ask him, did he honestly think that it was the Zodiac Killer that night? And he said, yes. Whew. Sorry, not sorry for the long email. A huge fan of your comedy, Time Suck, and an OG space lizard. I loved hearing this story from my father-in-law and being able to talk to him about what I learned on the podcast and explaining to him how lucky he was to survive this potential Zodiac Killer running. Amazing podcast. Wouldn't change a thing. Three out of five stars. Nick. Wow. Uh, thank you, Nick, for sending that in. Holy shit. It definitely seems like your father-in-law had a run-in with the Zodiac Killer and is very lucky that uh, he didn't die and die in horrible fashion that night. That's insane. What a weird thing to reflect on later. Um, oh, man. Bummer he couldn't have shot that guy. How crazy is that? That he had a rifle in his hands and if he would have, which I know is extreme in that situation to think that, you know, to ask him to do, but if he could have shot that guy, they could have identified the Zodiac Killer who was never caught. Crazy. I hope you're still enjoying the show, Nick. Uh, Last update. Let's end on what could be the start of a love story. Cupid-like sucker Jeff Rusa shared a post he came across in the Cult of the Curious Facebook group that needs some promotion. You're going to love this, I hope. I don't know why he wouldn't. Jeff writes, master sucker of all things dark, gory, inspiring, and all things in between. There's a space lizard I feel needs a shout out. This fellow sucker posted in our Cult of the Curious group. This hit many of us in the feels. And we as a cult will be damned if we can't help him. Attaches a shot of the post in our group inspired by you. I hope you do your due diligence <laughs> as our supreme cult leader to help this sucking lizard out. Okay, so this post was attached in the email. The post was left by Chris uh, Michael or Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L. So Chris, I'll say Michelle, Mitchell, I don't know. <laughs> Chris, Michael, I'll go with Michael. You guys know I'm not good with names. I met a wonderful space lizard named Katie in line today at Keystone Ski Resort while wearing my lizard's time suck jersey. Great conversation about our favorite episodes. Katie, if you're on here, shoot me a private message. I wish I had asked your phone number. And then he writes, yes, 
I am posting this here. I have no shame. <laughs> Good for you, Chris. And that is Chris, M-I-C-H-E-L, Katie. Katie, where are you? Let this guy, Chris, know if you're interested or if you're not. I, I hope uh, we all hear more about this soon. Love me some love. Uh, thank you, everyone, for your messages. And again, uh, good luck, Chris. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Another week in the books, Meat Sacks. More Bad Magic Productions content coming the rest of this holiday week. Annie Oakley didn't stop for holidays. We don't either. Uh, thank you again for all the ratings and reviews. It really, truly continues to help this show and our other Bad Magic Productions content grow. New spooks with Scared to Death on Tuesday night. Pure silliness. With Is We Dumb, Wednesday at noon, <laughs> pure, pure irreverent. So yes, we, we get a little, we get a little buck wild over in Is We Dumb. Uh, not that, not that I don't hear. As I'm saying that, I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like, you've said basically everything horrific imaginable you can say on this podcast. Um, hope you were inspired by Annie. Hopefully uh, you were not inspired to put an apple on your dog's head and try and shoot it off. Please don't do that. Instead, uh, maybe eat too much. Maybe have too much pumpkin pie. Have a happy Thanksgiving and definitely keep on sucking. Hey, 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 what's up? I got this apple. Oh, yeah, you got the apple? In the dog. Oh, yeah, put it on Penny's head. Okay, right now? Okay, Penny, hold still. Penny, hold still. Hold still, sweetie. I, I think I can do this. I feel very inspired. Oh. JK, gosh dang. She's fine. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University. You'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.